Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It is Tuesday, October 8th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Duke-Masava, is back. We also welcome back election lawyer, Adolfo Mondragon. And I think we got a lot to discuss with Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union, the one, the only, Stacey Davis-Gates. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Free Speech Tuesday. And here's why. Hello? <laughs> no, that's just me knocking on the oh. table, emphasizing that we have free speech. Whoa, did I knock it so hard that it set off a tape? <laughs> yes. Wow, that's a hard knock. Yes, hard knock life. Anyway, before I get into the limitations of free speech, folks, let me just tell you, I had a great weekend. You have a great weekend, D? Yeah, it was great a few days ago. <laughs> kind of looking forward to the week now, but yeah, sure. Let me uh, peel back to the weekend. Wait, yeah, it was awesome. All right, I saw Obit, great flick, run, don't walk, Obit. O-B-I-T, a documentary about the obituary writers at the New York Times, I can guarantee to you that absolutely nobody will watch that movie based on my recommendation because who's going to watch a movie about obit writers but it's a great right uh great flick folks if you really want to know what it's like to be on a deadline in a newspaper among other things uh check out obit great flick uh hats off to the makers of obit uh, also saw the uh, hustlers Another great flick. Saw this at a movie theater. Uh, J-Lo, of course. I've been talking about this with Romana. I, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Finally went and saw it. Loved it. Two thumbs up. Everybody says, give J-Lo the uh, Oscar. But I'm saying, Constance Wu. I think she deserves an Oscar consideration as well. Anyway, woke up to dis, uh, to realize, D, uh, through the stories on the front pages of the newspapers, that we're in the middle of a great debate over free speech. All right, so let me just talk about two juxtaposing uh, issues that are more or less related to free speech. How much speech, how much freedoms do we have to say what we really think uh, in our society today? We supposedly believe that we're free to say what we want. We have a First Amendment protected right. Uh, we won't get fired if we uh, say what we want. We won't uh, uh, confront retaliate retaliation for saying what we want, et cetera, and so forth. Well, let's deal with uh, free speech issue number one. Uh, President Trump uh, is a lunatic. I think we all agree. I have a free speech right to say that. Uh, he is a lunatic. Uh, he has a, a definitely has a, an exaggerated sense of his own self. And yesterday, in the midst of all the fur furry, fury, excuse me, uh, furor of his decision to pull troops out of Syria, uh, exposing the Kurds to, uh, to a counterattack by Turkey, thus uh, uh, potentially destroying the uh, Kurdish forces that were so supportive of United U.S. interests in the Middle East. Anyway, in the midst of all that, uh, when there was a blowback, he sent out the following tweet, quote, as I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey I've done before. 
there's so much lunacy embedded in that tweet, uh, starting with the notion of great and unmatched wisdom, and then going on to talking about destroying another country. But let's just talk about great and unmatched wisdom just for a moment. Any president who speaks of his great and unmatched wisdom is a little unhinged. That's kind of like the language of a cultist state where we have a leader who is just considered like the grand poobah, the person like we, we can never question or doubt uh, that person's wisdom. They're like the ultimate leader. I think of the North Korean state, let's say, or the Soviet Union in the old days, or Cuba in the days of Castro. That's kind of like the cult-like following that Donald Trump demands from his uh, followers. So Republicans have free speech rights to denounce Trump for that tweet. Where are they, D? Under the table. Not have- one of them. <laughs> there they are. Huh. Every single, not one Republican. Maybe Mitt Romney mildly but he even he doesn't denounce some of these outrageous tweets why because they're f- afraid of reaction from the republican base uh, the heart and soul of the republican party loves donald trump will follow him anywhere it's pretty clear uh, i think it's like what 90 percent in the polls support donald trump no matter what he does and so all these other republicans pull back they have free speech right but they don't exercise it why because they don't want the retaliation They talk so much about free speech when it comes to defending the rights of people that they support to insult other people, but they don't have the free speech to denounce Donald Trump for fear of retaliation. Now let's move over to the NBA. D, please allow me to talk a little sports just for a moment. I looked it over before the show. (laughs) This classifies as uh, political news, so Uh, you're good. By the way, Joe Colley, Chicago Sun-Times Bulls beat writer, will be in the studio for a bonus segment. Dennis has allowed me. How about that? Free speech. Dennis. I'm in a good mood lately. I don't know what it is. That's a bonus uh, segment, folks, that'll be coming up uh, over the weekend. Anyway, uh, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, for my uh, sports challenge the listeners out there basketball's the game with the big ball okay uh, all right. now so, you're insulting him <laughs> i'm just saying anyway uh daryl morey who is a uh, general manager of the houston rockets tweeted out the other day fight for freedom stand with hong kong uh it was a tweet uh, supporting the protesters in hong kong we haven't talked much about this of course uh, they want to guarantee their freedom for mainland china uh they want to have more or less independence from mainland china mainland china um wants to assert their right to uh, control uh, hong kong it's a issue that's been raging for, I think I want to say a year. Uh, China, of course, is a big financial backer of the NBA. Uh, The Chinese market is very important to the National Basketball Association. And as a result, uh, within, I don't know, an hour or so, two hours, three hours of uh, Maury's tweet going out, there was an immediate response from the NBA. The NBA itself apologized to China. Uh, Maury took down his tweet. I presume somebody instructed him to take down the tweet. Maury more or less apologized for saying what he had said. Uh, James Harden, the star guard for the uh, the Houston Rockets, apologized for what Maury tweeted. The De- guy with the big beard. Yes, the guy with the big beard. Thank you for helping out our uh, Sports Challenge listeners. One of the great guards in the NBA. Uh, it becomes pretty clear that there's a lot of business ties to China, and the NBA is very concerned that they may upset the Chinese 
market. And obviously, people in mainland China have a different attitude toward protesters in Hong Kong than people in the United States. In the United States, we tend to look at protesters in Hong Kong as people who are standing up for their free speech rights, for their First Amendment right, even though they don't have a U.S. Constitution to protect them. But the principle of free speech and uh, having a free country. So in the United States, we have one view of what's happening in Hong Kong and mainland China. Uh, they have a different view uh, that they're the, that they're thugs, that uh, they're that they're um, they're intimidating uh, people who want to remain loyal to China. So there's the Chinese view. I happen to be far more sympathetic to the Hong Kong protesters than, let's say, the people who run the NBA. But I don't have business ties in the NBA uh, in China. So there's limits to free speech. Obviously, uh, the Sun Times wrote a very good editorial, strong editorial in today's bright one about the issue. I want to quote from it. Hold on, get it right here. Very good editorial. Can you show those listeners that a uh, newspaper, please? Uh, a code of conduct that would discourage an employee from expressing a personal view on a matter as fundamental as human rights, whether here or abroad, almost always goes too far in an open society. Here, here, I agree 100% with the Sun-Times and the principle that free speech should apply. But the reality is this, folks. There are limits to free speech. We see it all the time. Right now, I ask any of you out there in our listening audience, do you feel you have free speech to go on the internet and blast your boss or blast his or her's decision? Of course you don't. Because the boss has free speech to fire you. So there are limits. This notion that there are no limits whatsoever to free speech is pretty unrealistic. We see it all the time. And uh, but my goodness, I remember, D back in, the, in, in Chicago, right here in the city of Chicago, when the city was united around the Olympics. Ooh, I seem to have lost it. There we go. And bringing the Olympics to town, many people felt compelled to go along with it. Their bosses went along with it. Corporate Chicago went along with it. Civic Chicago went along with it. I suppose if you worked for a corporation that was funding the Olympic Games, the uh, Mayor Daly's proposal to bring the Olympics to Chicago, you wouldn't speak out against that you wouldn't show up to work with a no games t-shirt on so there are obviously limits uh to free speech i wish it weren't so i wish we tolerated uh and accepted any view that wasn't like blatantly racist or offensive but reality there's limits how many times do people come in the studio what do they say uh ben don't ask me a question about kim fox (laughs) Yes, indeed, folks. There are some severe limits to free speech in this country. We got a great show today, everybody. Maya, I think Maya is one person in the world who does not uh, have any limits on her free speech because she tells it like it is every time she comes in the studio. Uh, and she's all geared up to talk about the taxi cab story that was in the New York Times. She's fired up over that one. Oh, we got back-to-back guests today that just... Let it run. Adolfo Mondragon. Uh, he, he doesn't he doesn't tolerate any right. limitations. Well, let's just it. get this out of the way right now. The views and actions of Adolfo Mondragon do not reflect those of the Ben Jarofsky show. <laughs> Especially the foul mouth on that young man. Oh, good, good guy. Lord. He's got to give us an Ed Burke update. Uh, he knows everything about Ed Burke. And he's also going to tell us about The Irishman, which is the great Marty Scorsese movie. I think Adolfo's the only person in the city of Chicago who's seen it. Yeah, he saw the well, movie. Well, he posted it on Twitter, so there's just a group of Irishmen. Irish people just waiting. They just can't, can't wait to I hear this. I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see this flick. Uh, Danny Solis update for him, and then we're going to get into the whole issue of Donald Trump and his taxes. Interesting uh, ruling by a judge uh, in New York. Donnie, Donnie Trump's got to reveal those taxes. Boy, I'm waiting to see that, huh? Hey, how about the free speech rights of Republicans to speak out about Donald Trump's taxes? Hold on. 
Still under the table, B. You know, it's funny, the limitations of free speech. Come on, Republicans, don't be afraid to say something bad about Donald Trump. I am scared. Uh, anyway, so Adolfo Mondragon will be here. And then Stacey Davis-Gage, uh, the vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Boy, they're in the midst of, uh, Dennis will be talking about this later uh, in the uh, news segment of the show. Contentious uh, contract negotiations with the city of Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Board of Education, etc. Get an update from Stacey, see what's going on with the teachers. You may, hey, maybe by now they cut a deal, D. How, maybe she'll come on the show and say, Ben, we cut a deal. How about that? Wouldn't oh, that be something? Finally get an exclusive. <laughs> Take that, Sneed. <laughs> We're coming for you, Remember, Sneed. How about uh, that? <laughs> when Pat Quinn announced he was running for attorney general, did he do it on our show, D? No. Uh-uh. Where'd he do it? Sneed. Don't <laughs> remind me. I go, hey, Pat, what about us? What did we chop liver? What did Pat say? <laughs> I think he called us douchebags? <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, Quinn would not do something. He goes, well, Ben, you know, I got I've I've known Pat. Uh, well, look, I give a scoop to you, douchebags. <laughs> do your Pat Quinn imitation. That was it. Oh, that was it? Oh, that sounded a little like, uh, who did that sound like? Uh, it sounded like your imitation of Roder. That's what it sounded like. By the way, David Roder uh, for the Sun-Times has been on a roll writing, uh, writing a lot of great stories. you got to bring him back on to talk about some of the development issues in the city of Chicago. Anyway, enough talk. Time to get down to the news with the young man from Altonley Call, the doctor. Hey, everybody. How's it going? You got uh, free speech rights, boy. Yeah, you're about to hear them. Okay. Right now. Okay. If you don't shut up. All right. All right. Let's talk about the Chicago and or Illinois news <laughs> happening this afternoon. No Tuesday public event scheduled for our Illinois governor, but J.B. Pritzker was the subject of a recent poll oh. released by the University of Illinois Springfield Survey Research Office. Did not know this. I know. You're, uh -oh. you're gonna learn uh -oh. about it. We're gonna talk about it today. We're uh, gonna talk about it today. All right. Habita, habita. If we have a little time after uh, the news here, we'll talk about it. But we'll uh, right. make sure to talk about it today. But first, we got to talk about our Chicago mayor. Mayor Lori Lightfoot's schedule includes a trip to Westinghouse College Prep to announce a new CPS apprenticeship system, then to Soldier Field. No, not for a game of flag football, for a big announcement from the Chicago Fire. That announcement, by the way, is that the Chicago Fire will be playing in Soldier Field. Good. I hope they preempt the Bears because the Bears are so bad they don't deserve to get oh, to boy. play at Soldier Field. The Bears should have to play at like some park district field. That's how bad the Chicago Bears are. Can I, say, I have First Amendment rights to say that. That, yes, don't I? Do. I yes, have free speech do. right. You can criticize any any person in Chicago can criticize the Chicago Bears. Feel free. That display of football on Sunday was absolutely wretched. Oh, Sorry, man. D. If you if we could just go back to uh, that Thursday when the Bears are going to play the Packers, <laughs> Week One. <laughs> oh, they had you a. were so optimistic. They had a little. Uh, cheer session going on here at the bright one remember yeah, yeah we didn't get invited by the way you notice no, that we did not you know why because they have free speech rights not to invite us to their party okay <laughs> are you sensing a theme listeners <laughs> free speech tuesday i told you you have free speech not to talk and free speech to talk all right so, then uh, lightfoot is headed to city hall she does this every tuesday where she'll meet with chicago police top Brass. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be going on there. Are uh, you excited you're going to go see some Chicago Fire games, Ben? Uh, yeah, sure, maybe. I'd rather see them than the Bears. Oh, wow. I'd rather watch them than the Bears. That I don't even know what that was on Sunday. Oh, and as far as that looming Chicago teacher strike that uh, Lightfoot has on her plate. We need a comprehensive written offer. Still no resolution, mm. but we do have updates. The mayor's office and the Chicago Teachers Union now have 
nine, count them, nine days to come up with a, a deal to avoid a teacher strike. According to the mayor, last Friday, the mayor's office received five pages from the teachers union. Lightfoot said that that is not enough to cover the many issues still open, such as compensation, insurance, and staffing. Lightfoot held a press conference Monday, and remember last week, she put an offer on the teacher's table. CTU said, no dice. During the press conference, she let it be known it's been 141 days since the teachers union has given her office and Chicago Public Schools a comprehensive written counter offer. Ben, she even brought props with her to the event. <laughs> I saw it's that. Like Carrot Top coming to the city. Wait, Carrot Top, the comedian? Yeah. He had props? He had props. <laughs> he had a carrot Apparently top. you don't know anything about Carrot Top. I just know he has red hair. <laughs> what were his props? They were endless. I don't know. I can't think of if, if anybody listening on the live stream now can uh, remember a specific carrot top prop. I, I not I'm not sure I ever saw a carrot top routine. I have to make that confession, D. All right. Well, I think I'm going to try and find some carrot top to play for all of us today. Right. You're welcome, way, can I just listener? give a shout out to Jeff Ross? Just as long as you're speaking oh, about comedian. Okay. Yeah, He's yeah. hilarious. And I owe it all to D. He's the one who introduced me to I spent a lot of time this weekend right, watching Jeff Ross videos. Anyway, you know, D. can I give a shout out to carrot top? <laughs> okay. Have you ever seen a carrot top video? Well, yeah, I've seen carrot top okay. videos. Okay. You know who's a big fan of Carrot Top? No one. Alder, no, Alder Woman Garza oh, okay. in the Tenth Ward loves Carrot Top. I may be sarcasm. I no, it's know. not. It's I. I saw her talk about it. All right, but she had props with her. Okay, okay. everybody with her. Uh, she had two displayed pieces of poster board with a giant 141 on it and a timeline of all the cities uh, to further highlight. Uh, the thing there. So uh, well, all the city's uh, offers, I meant to say. Uh, I see. Okay. All the city's offers. Forgot the word what, offers. So what's the 141 name. again? What's that supposed to be? Days. Uh, let me see. Let me go back here. 41. It's been 141 days since the teachers union is giving her office and Chicago public schools a comprehensive written counter offer. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the 141. So just everybody knows Boy, people all over the city are going, 141. That's outrageous. 141. <laughs> so she had the two poster boards there with 141 and a timeline of all the city's offers to further highlight. And if that weren't enough, I think it may have been, by the way, Lightfoot also held up copies of her administration's 50-page offer, then contrasted it with the union's five-page response delivered last Friday that she claims addresses, quote, none of the substantive issues. Go check out the pictures online if you haven't yet. All right, so Ben, we got some quotes uh, from Lightfoot as well as some audio, and I have quotes from the CTU. So first up, Lightfoot's quotes from Monday's press conference addressing the potential teacher strike, quote, this is Lightfoot. I'm concerned. I'm definitely concerned. We have moved and met them on issue after issue, but we can't get but we can't bargain against ourselves. We need to have them at the table with a comprehensive counteroffer on the substantive issues. It's 141 days and all we have to show for it is five pieces of paper. That's not moving things forward. CTU leadership is not exhibiting the sense of urgency needed to move these negotiations forward in a substantive way to avoid a strike. Realistically, we have to have a deal done by next Tuesday morning so that it can be documented and they can take it to their House of Delegates to avoid a strike on October 17th. Lightfoot was then asked whether she now believes the CTU wants a strike. She said, quote, I hope that's not the case. There's no reason why we should have a strike. We are willing to go full bore seven days a week for the next seven days or however long it takes to get a deal done. And here's the audio. Shout out to WGN. 
CTU has not moved off of any of their main opening positions that they gave back in January of this year. That's not how bargaining works, as you all know. Give us a comprehensive written offer. We've given offers on all those issues. We need a comprehensive written offer that deals with all these issues. And when we get that at the bargaining table, we will respond to it and we can meet in the middle and get something done. So let's pause it there before we read the CTU responses. Ben Jaroski, your thoughts. Well, I've sat through a lot of these things. Uh, I should say this. I've never been on the inside. Uh, of a negotiation between the teachers union and the mayor or the board of education. But uh, having lived in Chicago since 1981, I've watched many of these uh, showdowns. And in each instance, uh, the mayor will say something or the board will say something or the superintendent will say something. It always varies. It seems to vary. Uh, Back in the 80s, the superintendent had more of a public role in this. Uh, And then the union would say something. So it's hard to know because you're not there. Right, D? I mean, everybody's going to spin it their way. I understand that. Uh, I have a fundamental belief regarding this showdown, and that is that what the union is asking for, Mayor Lightfoot, I put this in my last week's column, Mayor Lightfoot, Mayor Rahm, Mayor Daley should have offered on their own years ago, or in the case of Mayor, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, months ago. The notion that our public schools of Chicago would not have nurses, social workers, and counselors on just a regular basis, people who, librarians as well, put them in the list too, people who work in the school on a day-to-day basis, uh, the notion that some schools have them, some schools don't, some schools share them, uh, they could be, if, if, if a social worker leaves, there doesn't seem to be any hurry to replace him or her, so that kids go without them. How about kids going without art or music or drama in many schools we do not adequately staff our public schools in the city of chicago it hits hardest at the poorest schools i think this has just been the case in the city for as long as i can remember and i think it's outrageous that the city allows this to continue so this is something i believe that any mayor should address without having the threat of a teacher strike this is above and beyond something like prep time. Most people in the city of Chicago are not really interested in the intricacies of teacher prep time or the like the intricacies on days off or whatever the little tiny issues that they're bargaining over. Like the city of Chicago will say, these are all the proposals we've given. They'll have a huge stack of proposals, most of which people don't care about, D, but they do care about something fundamental like Is your kid going to have access to a counselor? Is your kid going to have access to a nurse? Is your kid going to have a librarian in the library? Or is the library just going to be closed because there's no librarian to monitor it? And uh, we've gone far too long in the city. It's disgraceful. And I always point this out. There are choices that we have as a city. And we have opted to give money to finance development deals in gentrifying neighborhoods as opposed to hiring nurses, social workers, and counselors in our public schools. And I just think that's a disgrace. And I I feel as though it's really inappropriate that it's unfortunate that it comes down to a uh, bargaining between the teachers union and the mayor's office to get the mayor and the leaders of the board of uh, the board of education and just the leaders of Chicago to agree to do something that they should have done years ago. So that's my fundamental belief about this showdown. 
And this whole issue of 141 days is part of a larger strategy to convince the public that somehow or other Lori's right and the union's wrong. And the union will have its uh, its, its show-and-tell points to, to try to convince the public that they're right and Lori's wrong. Meanwhile, our schools are really inadequately financed and inadequately staffed, and kids pay the price for it. So that's my view on this. All right, so we heard from Lightfoot now to the CTU's response, and unfortunately, the CTU's response does not involve any props. <laughs> Come on, Stacy, get, get a sign up there, 141. <laughs> but, uh, well, people all over the north side are like, oh, 141, I'm outraged. Oh, oh, I'll tell you, terrible. if it weren't for that sign. I'll tell you what, man, Lori, I, well, I'll talk about this, but Lori Lightfoot's got the north side of Chicago eaten out out of her palm so many ben come on those teachers ben oh who's that an impression of anybody in particular <laughs> a lot of people that you know oh you ben come on like you know like the teachers you oh i'll, I'll just call jesse sharky up right hey jesse cut a deal right now everybody in the north side you know it's really unfortunate the teachers are so mean to Lori lightfoot they love Lori on the north side of chicago d all right, the CTU has responded. They say, first off, uh, Lightfoot's 141 delay uh, day delay claim is false. They say they've given many substantive proposals since January, but it took the city until July to respond. Monday afternoon, CTU released a statement blaming the mayor and CPS for dragging their feet. Here's the statement, quote, Union members routinely offer counterproposals to the district's terminally inadequate actions that are featured on both the CTU website and also in a series of video bargaining reports to members but the consensus from the rank and file bargaining team is that board has done more stalling and stonewalling during negotiations than actual bargaining ctu president jack uh jackie jesse sharkey said the union is equally exasperated he argued lightfoot knows full well what we need to get a deal done recommendations in writing that speak to the quality of Chicago public schools. It's been 22 years since they took out class size provisions. We've been waiting a long time for that. It's been six years since they closed 50 schools. It's been seven years since they promised a full school day. They promised that we would have, uh, have staff to support the longer day, and they laid off staff. The board hasn't shown that they're willing to move off what is, on their part, a stubborn refusal to negotiate on our key issues. They essentially want us to solve that problem for them by removing big chunks of our proposal. So the feeling of frustration is mutual. The board is still trying to take teacher time and we are still trying to increase it. Ben Jarofsky, we have CTU Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates joining us in the studio in about an hour. What do you think she's going to say about all this? Well, I, I can imagine. She's going to tell me she's going to be honest with me, number one. <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to predict what Stacey's going to say because i got to say something right now about uh, we're listening to Jesse Sharkey. And... I've lived through all this stuff. Folks, I remember when Rahm closed those 50 schools. Mayor Rahm, the mayor you elected, Chicago, you elected him twice. He closed those 50 schools. And when he closed those 50 schools, he and his school leaders, his appointed uh, school board appointees, uh, members, school board members, and the head of the schools, uh, in, that, in that day it was, I could, uh, no, it was um, Barbara Bird Bennett. They all said, this will enable us to more adequately reapportion uh, our, our resources so that the kids will get moved from a school that was empty to a, a school that's full and will be able to give them more things. So it'll be better for the kids. Remember they argued it was going to be better for the kids. And here we are seven years later, and guess what? 
these schools on the south and west side, where all, most of the 50 schools are closed, still don't have nurses, still don't have social workers, still don't have counselors, still don't have art, still don't have drama, still don't have music. So please tell me, why should anyone believe anything the mayors of the city of Chicago say when it comes to financing our schools and funding our schools? Jesse Sharkey is absolutely correct. Teachers have been waiting. They remember the 50 schools. Oh, they quoted Martin Luther King, I remember, when they closed the schools. This is for the kids. We're looking out for the kids. And somehow or other, people in power in the city of Chicago keep looking out for the kids. And nothing ever beneficial happens for the kids on the south and west sides in poor neighborhoods. So I I, I agree with Sharkey in that point. It's... I, it's like all these promises we hear from our city leaders when it comes to financing and funding our public schools. And the reality, there's not a tremendous amount of interest in spending money and dedicating money on poor schools. That's just a fact, folks. But there's always interest in spending money on developing a gentrifying neighborhood that doesn't need the money to begin with. So I understand the frustration of Jesse Sharkey and the teachers. I absolutely do, D. I share their sense of frustration because I've been watching this game played for a long, long time. All right. So let's get your uh, forecast here. It's a two-week question, but it's starting to feel like an age-old question. Will we see strike with the CTU? Yeah, I remember last time I said there would be no strike. So this year I, I'm going to go, this time I'm going to go the other way. I say there will be a strike. And by the way, what is not being mentioned in this press conference, and I, I've talked about this, I've written about this before, I've talked about this in the show one more time. When Jesse Sharkey, who's the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacey Davis Gates, talk about the need to have class size limits uh, in the contract, state law pro- prohibits the Chicago teachers from going into strike over that. So Lori Lightfoot is going to put the emphasis on the salary offer that's on the table. And uh, her editorial supporters in the various newspapers are going to put the emphasis on the salary offer that's on the table. Because that's what teachers are legally allowed to strike for. If the teachers go on strike and are still talking about uh, class size and nurses, Lori Lightfoot could have her lawyers go into court and ask a judge to rule the strike, uh, to put an injunction against the strike and force the teachers back to work on the grounds that it's an illegal strike. Everybody knows what's, everybody who's at the table understands the game that's being played. That's why Lori Lightfoot's putting the emphasis on issues that the teachers are allowed to strike on and the teachers are, don't really quite know how to deal with the fact that the Big differences of agreement have to do on issues they're not allowed to strike on. So Lori has an advantage on that front. But does that mean the kids of Chicago have an advantage? No, because Lori Lightfoot is going to avoid putting in a contract, a guarantee to hire counselors, social workers, nurses, librarians, etc. So if you're talking about something that's in the best interest of the students of Chicago, these jobs should have been filled years ago, and it should not be the subject of a contentious labor dispute. There you go. Once again, the mayor's office and the Chicago Teachers Union now have nine days to come up with a a deal to avoid the teacher strike. We'll keep you posted as updates become available, but hey, you know where we stand. Yay for our teachers! (laughs) Yay for our teachers! Uh, We're for the teachers. (laughs) Well, you know, listen guys, I admit it. Uh, We'll see what Maya has to say. She's in the studio, but I admit it. My mom was a teacher for 40 years. Chicago public school teacher. She was a union delegate. I, I make no bones about it. I'm generally on the side of the teachers. 
Uh, I said before, I think they overplayed their card uh, in the last election. They came on really strong. I don't quite understand why they were so passionate for uh, Tony Preckwinkle, but uh, I didn't share their passion on that. But by and large, uh, when it comes to a labor dispute, my heart is going to be with the teachers. Hey, podcast fans, that's you listening. I mean, I'm assuming you're listening to a podcast. The team at the Chicago Sun-Times have a new show to add to your listening lineup. Ben, make that noise, that football noise. Ready, set, 2020, hut, hut. Yeah, ready, set, 20, hut, hut. This football season, get the inside scoop on the Chicago Bears with Hallis Intrigue. It's the latest podcast from the Chicago Sun-Times. Tune in to hear Sun-Times sports reporters and Bears experts provide insight, analyze the day's big stories, Stay informed this football season. Listen to Hallis Intrigue at suntimes.com slash Hallis. And I know it sounds like it would be two L's in there, like Dallas, but it's H-A-L-A-S, Hallis. <laughs> you know, maybe you're uh, you know new to the city and you want yeah, to follow the Yeah, you are new to the city. <laughs> I, I, I made that mistake. And be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode check it out now at suntimes.com forward slash hallis and once again that's one l h a l a s don't go anywhere because coming up we're going to talk with maya duke masva the chicago reader and hey how about this during the break we're going to play a little carrot top okay all right sure. we mentioned him earlier ben's never uh he's not familiar with carrot top he didn't know he did props like huh yeah. so here we go carrot top take us to break pal Yeah, it's great. New York City. I love it. I walk around and I'm like, look, Chelsea Clinton. I thought she was in Stanford. What the? <laughs> but it gets worse. Check this out. Just when you thought, you look pretty good, Conan. Check this out. You do not look like this. Yep. <laughs> look, it's the Wendy's girl. I swear to God. Wendy's here! <laughs> Attention Chicago innovators and creators, 2019 Chicago Ideas Week is coming soon. October 12th through the 17th, this annual Ideas Festival is back, and it's the largest, most affordable Ideas Festival of its kind. They bring in hundreds of thought leaders from around the globe and some local to share ideas and spark action all across Chicago. To get a better idea of what to expect, here's a bit of audio from last year's Chicago Ideas Week with special guest and Chicago comedian Cameron Esposito. Everything that I have ever tried to do has had two motivations. One is I really do believe in trying to create social change. And then the other one is I'm scared and alone too. So I would like for you to join me. You know, every job that I have, I try to make sure to hold the door open. That's like my uh, motto for, for, um, like if I get through, you're coming with me. And I really, I believe in that wholeheartedly. And, uh, especially if I have more privilege than you, like I'm holding the door open for you, um, even wider. October 12th through the 17th, it's 2019 Chicago Ideas Week. Tickets go on sale to members on August 22nd and to general public September 10th. Once again, if you're an innovator or creator in the city of Chicago or even outside the city, you must join us for Chicago Ideas Week, October 12th through the 17th. For tickets and event information, head to chicagoideas.com. That's chicagoideas.com. And we hope to see you October 12th through the 17th for 2019 Chicago Ideas Week. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. 
food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. It's uh, Free Expression Tuesday of the Ben Jarofsky Show. You have the right to say whatever you want. And Maya's in the studio. She'll say what she wants and what she believes. We have a First Amendment, right, D? All right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Don't forget that. It's Free Expression Tuesday. It's always free expression on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, Maya, we have an announcement to make. Yes, we have a bunch of announcements. We have a bunch of announcements yeah. to make. So... Uh, let me make the first announcement, okay, because this uh, involves my dear friend, McDumkey. He decided, McDumkey, ProPublica, ace reporter, before that, Chicago Sun-Times, before that, the, uh, the reader. Anyway, well, we By did, the way, Maya Dumas with the Chicago Reader joining us. How's it oh, going? Didn't we already say that? I don't know. Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, Maya's here every Tuesday. Uh, and um, so, uh, Mick and I have been doing uh, the first Tuesday at the hideout for five years. And then Mick just said, you know what, Ben? It's been, it's just, I love it, but it's too much. I'm tired i need a break so he said he's going to take a break i got an ad horn i call maya i said maya will you step in and uh be my new partner in crime and first tuesday it took her about mm, three four seconds to say yes so anyway as much as i uh will miss mick i welcome maya to the show so welcome to first Tuesday. i'm happy to be your rebound after getting so unceremoniously <laughs> dumped yeah, I guess that's but one way. But if Mick comes back around asking for you to to reengage with him, <laughs> I cannot promise it's going to be and that I'm going to have a good reaction. So Mick, I would really urge you not to try that because might on play. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mueller agrees. So uh, I think probably our first show, we, you and I talked about it'd be something on the teacher strike. We'll get mm -hmm. into the teacher strike. Well, yeah. let's hope by then that there will be ever, uh, they will come to an agreement. There will no longer be a strike. The earliest they can go on strike is October 17th. First Tuesday is, as the name suggests, the first Tuesday of the month. It's a monthly political talk show at the hideout, 1354 West Wabansia, every uh, first Tuesday at 630. So that will be two weeks after they could, uh, November 5th, that's roughly two weeks after uh, the teachers will have been allowed to go on strike. Let's hope if they do go on strike, the strike is resolved, in which case we could talk about the resolution. If the strike's still going on, we could talk about that. And if the strike has been averted, we, we can, can still talk, talk about it. Yeah. We can talk about a lot of things. Yeah. So uh, you excited about yeah. doing first? Yeah, season? I am. I, I'm, I, I'm really, I've always loved the show. I've loved coming out to the hideout to see you guys with your guests. So I'm honored that you would ask me. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we'll, we'll carry on with this, uh, with this tradition. Yeah, and uh, in addition, we have another thing to promote. Oh, yeah. Let's allow you to promote that. So on Thursday, this coming Thursday, at 5.30 at Sidetrack, uh, the bar in Boys Town, we are hosting a preview party ahead of the presidential candidates um, LGBTQ uh, town hall event that's going to be um, 
live uh, on CNN. And so for about an hour uh, ahead of that, we're going to be speaking with a series of guests, um, local politicos, people who are involved in various forms of community organizing, political organizing, um, all from the LGBTQI community, talking about what they're going to be watching for in this town hall, um, the, what's top of the mind for the communities that they serve through their work. Um, and uh, as the presidential election uh, approaches, and uh, we'll also, rumor has it, have a special guest there. I'm not sure if we should say it or not, but... Uh, Marianne Williamson yeah. is supposed to stop by, yeah. which uh, which will be an interesting an interesting cameo in that evening. Um, twenty twenty presidential candidate Marianne Williamson, yes, who yeah. is not included in the uh, twenty in, in 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 the CNN LGBTQ town hall event, uh, but we but but she 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 might she might very well be the the main attraction to our event uh, on Thursday. So I think. Well, um, I wouldn't say the main attraction. Another attraction. Another attraction and yeah. a sideshow to you and me. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, a very interesting sideshow, uh, put it that way. But I would not say the main attraction. But go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that'll be a little. A little, a little amuse bouche for what's going on on Friday. Why don't you tell folks about that? What's supposed to be going? Well, on? I'm. I don't have all the details on that one. You caught me off guard there. But uh, Marion Williamson uh, will be in town on Friday, and we're going to do a special podcast broadcast interview with her. Uh, I believe it's a Cards uh, Against Humanity. Yeah. And uh, I asked Maya if she would uh, join me on stage to sort of like our first first Tuesday show, even though it's not a first Tuesday. Tuesday and interview Marion Williamson, and then we'll drop it as a podcast probably on Saturday. Interesting what she has to say. Uh, she's in town. I guess she's raising money in Chicago. Her campaign is still going on, even though she could not meet the threshold to make the next debate. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by Marion Williamson. People know that on many levels because uh, she has been free in the debates that she was included on to go places that traditionally candidates for president on the Democratic side, on either side, won't go. Like she talked about reparations in a very meaningful way that resonated with me. Uh, and she, and then she she got a little touchy-feely, as Marion Williamson can, on issues about love, promoting love as, a, uh, as opposed to promoting hate. And a lot of people that I know, a lot of people in the paper made fun of her. But I have to tell you this, uh, Maya, I know a lot of touchy-feely types that really go for it. And I don't Listen, mean to... whoever is making fun of her, whatever happens with her, with this campaign that she's, that she's running, she's laughing all the way to the bank. Like, <laughs> Marianne Williamson is a very rich woman who's gotten very successful promoting her particular touchy-feely vision of the world. So, yeah, um... I think I think uh, it, it's 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 a very it's it's like the same people who were making fun of Trump, you know, like, OK, go ahead and not take it seriously. I'm not saying she's going to get far in her quest for this nomination, but I'm just saying that, like, it should this this is a this is a person with a huge cold following. Yeah, that's worth paying attention to. Well, and I would say the difference between uh, Donald Trump and Marion Williamson uh, in terms of their electability uh, has to do with this. Donald Trump preaches hate. Marion Williamson preaches love. Uh, Donald Trump uh, preaches intolerance. Uh, Marion Williamson preaches tolerance. You'll go a lot further, politically speaking, in this country preaching hate and intolerance than you will preaching love and tolerance. You'll get mocked by 
so many mainstream reporters that I know make fun of Marion Williamson. Because, oh my God! Uh, and so clearly, it's a, you're at a huge disadvantage if you're preaching. As Ramana uh, Hussein, my uh, Friday show, she said, she, she said Marion sounds like a song by the Beatles, and uh, so you won't go as Beatles are, by the way, a very successful yeah, group as listen, well. Listen, let, let's see who matters more: <laughs> the editorial boards of the Chicago newspapers and whoever else is making fun of Marion Williamson or the Beatles. Or you know Beatles, what I mean? Like yeah. what? What's got more staying power? Um, but uh, um, I do believe that electab- uh, electability will be an issue for Mary Williams. Obviously, she didn't couldn't qualify the next debate. Uh, but I just think it's very trite to be like responding to a person like this uh, who's like making some kind of waves as in an attempt to become the nominee to be responding with like, oh, you can't take this person seriously. You know, like not after 2016, like every single person who is sitting there saying, oh, you can't take this person seriously. If they were saying the same thing about Donald Trump, they need to shut up and sit down. Yeah. Like, cause they clearly don't understand how, how people work, how psycho, how like social psychology works, how people make decisions, what motivates them. Like, I'm not interested in hearing from anyone who is like making fun of Marianne Williamson now, who was doing the same thing with regards to Trump four years ago. Yeah. I, um, Todd, you know, I have to admit, I did not think that Donald Trump would be, uh, the Republic at this stage in 2015, I did not think Donald Trump. Yeah. At this stage they were, they were relegating news about him to the entertainment section of the Huffington post. Yeah. They were making fun of him that way, and now, uh, good God, he's the president. I mean, yeah, I think you do have a point that people are probably much more motivated to go out and vote if they feel riled up based on intolerance and hate, and if they feel like they're, you know, protecting something that's valuable to them by making this choice. Um, that sort of love and acceptance message, I think, is maybe a little less motivational in getting people out of their out of their seats and to the polling place. I, I think, but but. As far as like writing it off because it sounds silly, like this is like a multi-billion dollar industry. This like self-help, chicken soup for the soul, crystals, you know, healing yourself with herbs and astrology. All of that shit is like people are, this is how people survive out there. This is how people are coping with the world. This is a huge, hugely popular, hugely influential kind of niche. And Marion Williamson is a very big deal in that niche. So, um, yeah. I would add marijuana and alcohol to that list of what makes people get through life. Uh, (laughs) You know, the things, that's how people survive. I would add marijuana and alcohol uh, to to that list. Um, All right, let's get down to the taxi cab story. It was a very disturbing article in the New York Times. We talked a little bit about it on Friday with Danny Pogoshelsky, who was the first person to alert it, to uh, bring it to my attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it ran in, you have actually a hard copy, God bless you, a millennial with a newspaper. I love it. Yeah, when Uh, they don't steal it from in front of my building. uh, Oh, do you have a subscription? (laughs) I did not know that. Yes, I have a Sunday Times subscription, but if I don't go outside early enough in the morning, (laughs) somebody fucking steals my paper. (laughs) That sucks. I hate that. Uh, But anyway, uh, give folks... um, you know, rundown of this very important story. Yeah. So this is a story. So, um, a few months ago, the times did a big, big story about the New York city taxicab industry and the way that it was basically destroyed by speculative lending for medallions. So for people that don't really know about cabs, the, 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 the thing, so cabs are licensed by a city and 
uh, when a cab was licensed, it, it has a it has a medallion, this like m- literal like metal little plate that gets screwed onto the car that indicates that this is an authorized cab. Now, uh, medallions are uh, issued by the cities in which the cabs are operating, and they are obviously valuable because there's only so many of them that get issued. And uh, typically, they, you know, they, they, buying and set, like there's a whole market around medallions out there. And so there's, you know, big fleets of cabs that own a bunch of these medallions that are like well financed by, you know, banks or investors or whatever. They can buy a bunch of these medallions, open up shop as, uh, you know, kind of a, a whole fleet of cabs. They hire drivers to, to, to drive for them. The drivers essentially pay rent for the car they drive and for the use of this medallion. And, you know, once they uh, kind of make enough money to pay off what they owe to the fleet owners, they can keep the rest of it themselves. But you essentially have to drive a lot to like really make a profit, uh, make a living doing this. Now there's also, um, there's also owner operators who are people who by some, you know, through one way or another become the owners of their own medallion. And then they can sort of, uh, run their, you know, operate their own taxi. They're sort of a free agent. Now, um, so, so this first story that came out in the Times a few months ago was all about what happened in New York City in the early 2000s, sort of uh, alongside and sort of beyond the housing bubble uh, and, and the recession that followed its bust. There was this whole kind of c- c- concurrent situation going on with these taxi medallions. And basically the Times found in their investigation that like, Uber and Lyft and these ride-sharing companies is not what killed the New York City taxi industry. But instead, what killed the New York City taxi industry and what's been killing and choking it is this insane speculative market on these medallions. So the medallions are bought uh, bought up by you know wealthy individuals, well-connected people. It's kind of a small cabal of operators in this space. And then those same people go and turn around and do like predatory lending to and take advantage of cab drivers by uh, by by giving these these like insane loans for like no money down or very little down. Uh, they get into these very predatory type of loan situations from the people who own these battalions, and then essentially they are spending all of their earnings from driving cabs, paying back the fees and interest on these insane loans for these medallions whose prices are insanely inflated. And so this sun this past Sunday, this story came out about the same situation in Chicago, where these same New York uh, operators took over the Chicago medallion industry basically and, and created the same kind of bubble here. Now that while in New York cabs have been much less vulnerable to like the, the ride share, uh, you know, threat because actually, uh, and this was another very interesting thing that, that, that the times found was that like most of the Uber and Lyft rides in New York city originate in the boroughs. And most of the cab business is on the Island of Manhattan. And they're really actually not competing with one another. So the cabs are hurting in Manhattan because of this medallion bullshit in Chicago. It's a little bit more complicated. The cabs here are much more vulnerable to this incursion from the rideshare companies. But nevertheless, even without the rideshare companies, the cabs, the cabs in Chicago would be fucked. Like they were, they, the, 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 the fleet operators, the independent operators, um, they all came kind of under pressure and into the, the predatory fray of these, of these, of these kind of, uh, 
shady businessmen from New York City, some of them connected to, you know, the Trump administration via Michael Cohen. Um, one of the names in this business is this guy, Simon Garber, who's who's well known in New York. And then the other one is Michael Levine. So this story kind of details how how this happened, how, you know, how these New York uh, kind of fin- these New York business guys, these medallion guys uh, came to take over the market in Chicago. And what's so remarkable is like, they talk about just how big this bubble got. So the average price of a taxi medallion in Chicago in 2006 was about $50,000, Okay. right? So traditionally you could, you know, if you're, you could take out a loan, you know, to finance buying a medallion. Sometimes the city would actually give them away and have like lotteries for them. And then you would really hit the jackpot, obviously. Mm-hmm. Once these New York operators came in, bought up a bunch of these medallions and then grossly inflated the prices for them and then started being the lenders who were lending the money for people to buy these medallions in tw- 2013. So, uh, you know, like six, seven years later, the prices of Chicago medallions were almost $400,000. So people were taking out like $300,000, $400,000 loans to pay for these medallions whose value was grossly inflated mm-hmm. right at the time as the rideshare stuff started. And the, 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 the terms of these loans were insane. I mean, people were like getting into these situations where the interest was like 25%. I mean, a lot of the cab operators are immigrants, are people who don't speak English as their first language are all like, they're already vulnerable to all kinds of predatory lending schemes as it is. Um, and essentially the city looked the other way. The city of Chicago. Look, yeah, that's a I big mean, surprise. There, there's, there's, uh, I mean, there were people who knew about this going on. There's people that are talked about in this story who we all may know and and remember, such as you know, uh, I mean, there's this an, an amazing quote here from Michael Negron, uh, f- former Rahm Emanuel advisor and also former candidate for to be your alderman, Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not uh, prevail. Matt he, Martin prevailed. Right. And he, so Michael Negron is in here saying, in retrospect, they should have set off alarm bells uh, that outside investors were coming in to upend the industry. And everybody kind of missed it, which is such bullshit because this whole article details how Patrick Daly, Richard M. Daly's son, <laughs> yeah. was very involved with bringing these people into the Chicago market. So, yeah. like, People like the the city knew this was going on, but the, the, at the other typical way. Chicago fashion, under under Mr. Daly, the former mayor, the officials who regulated the Chicago taxi industry were focused on raising revenue through medallion sales, rather than policing these predatory yeah. lending schemes. <laughs> so, in other words, the city would get a piece of uh, selling the medallion if the if there was a speculative market that was more money for the city, and so they weren't really concerned about the well-being of the industry as a whole. Is that yeah. What you're Since 2000, records show the city has made more than $70 million by auctioning medallions and collecting taxes on private sales. They were just excited there were people buying these things up and that there were auctions that could become, you know, more more lucrative and stuff. God, this um, sounds... And here's another... Yeah. Wow, this is like another fucking crazy, very Chicago twist. It says Chicago... So Chicago requires medallion buyers to have a lawyer, but city officials acknowledge... The city officials acknowledge that the lawyer often also represents the seller, lender, or broker, <laughs> and regulators do yeah. not have the ability to ensure that buyers' interests are protected. So the city makes you have a lawyer to buy a medallion, but they do nothing to make sure that there's no conflict of interest between your lawyer and the people who are squeezing mm-hmm. you with these insane predatory loans. 
So essentially, uh, the city's main interest was uh, squeezing as much money as they could uh, from the sales of these meda- medallions, yeah. whether it uh, helped or hurt the, the individual ca- uh, cab drivers. It really reminds me of what so much we've heard, and I, I give Lori Lightfoot credit for moving away from this, uh, but from like the red light camera industry mm-hmm. that we have, in the, where the city was so determined to make money uh, off of uh, you know fines and fees and t- and t- and moving violations, etc., uh, that they were uh, complicit in sort of like this almost like gangster-like process of taking people's cars from them or keep yeah. preventing, holding them hostages so they get their money. Basically, yeah. it was all about getting the money. Right, and and in the meantime, these are people who are making like 20, 20 to $30,000 a year. This is not like, you, you do not make that much money as a cab driver, especially not when, you know, people's business started being affected by the rideshare. Um, there's this... Other, uh, so so the article does a really thorough job of describing how how predatory these loans were and how. Um, uh, so one of the brokers it describes that was lending to Chicago cab drivers. Uh, so the Signature Bank, and and the broker lent this particular man almost four hundred thousand dollars without requiring a significant down payment. Records show, but he said he had to pay thousands in fees and accept an eight percent interest rate on one of his loans, which was above the typical bank rate, which would have been 5%. And on top of that, these loans had these, like all these clauses that made it so like you can't repay early, but if you don't repay uh, in a certain number of years, you get, they, they included these like quote unquote balloon clauses, which means that like the interest rate just like goes through the roof if you don't repay within a certain amount of time. And so they found that every Chicago medallion loan reviewed by the Times had a balloon clause that required borrowers to repay everything in a few years or face interest rates as high as 24%. Mm. Can you imagine a 24% interest rate on a $400,000 loan? Yeah, outrageous. You'd be like, driving day and night to pay that back. For the rest of your for life of and your, your life. children's lives and your grandchildren's yeah. lives. Like, so yeah, and uh, and the city knew about this, and they just sort of, you know, <laughs> look the other they, way. Yeah, basically, uh, per 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 per, you know, typical in typical Chicago fashion. Well, when you when you read the story and you think about it, do you think that the city should put a a, a ban on anybody buying a medallion who was not driving the cab? Uh. Well, I mean, it would probably you probably wouldn't necessarily have to go that far. I mean, some people may want to. Dr- I mean, look, you could long before this like crazy speculative market developed with these predatory actors. I mean, there were there were still cab you know cab companies and cab drivers and cab companies who would own most of the medallions and hire these drivers as contractors, basically who would have to essentially. I mean, the c- cab companies have been squeezing drivers in their own way f- since forever. Yeah. So and there and I think there's like one conversation around like how to regulate that so that people aren't so exploited. But this whole situation is like. First of all, like that, like the the fact that you would require people to have a lawyer but not have any kind of protection, nothing nothing to prevent the lawyer who represents the buyer from also representing the lender, which like like that that's the kind of thing that seems like very obvious in terms of like what is the job of the local government to do. Um, so so yeah, I think even before you get to the to this idea that like only drivers can buy medallions, it's like well what like. How is it possible that these that the, like we're allowing these kinds of predatory loans to be financing our taxi industry? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I it, it just when, when when I read the story and uh, when I heard uh, your uh, recitation of what uh, or uh, summation of the article, it just reminded me to a certain degree of the secondary market that exists, like let's say with a popular concert or with sporting event tickets, uh, where the public can buy the tickets f- directly from, let's say, uh, the venue where they're being sold at a certain price. Uh, and then there's the secondary market where you have to pay an inflated price. And that's effectively what the city allowed to happen. Yeah, it's a they scalping. Allowed, yes. Yeah, and, and this is, and here's like the, the figures that are on this. So, uh, so records show that, uh, hold on a second. Mm, 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 mm. So one of the companies that one of the two New York operators that bought up most of these Chicago medallions sold most of the Chicago medallions they had bought a few years later. Mm -hmm. So this is like a pump and dump type situation, I guess. The companies paid $30 million to buy 543 medallions between 2006 and 2008. That's just two years. They sold 529 medallions, so almost the same amount, between 2012 and 14 for a total of $185 million. So they paid $30 million for these things, like captured the market, inflated the prices, and then sold them for $185 million. And by the way, the guy, one of these guys that was behind this was at the same time as he was preparing to do this fire sale, was having articles published in like the cab industry trade publication saying, oh, everything is fine. We don't need to worry about rideshare. We don't need to worry about anything. The medallion is as good as gold. It's only going to go up in price. It's the same bullshit as the housing bubble. It's yeah. the same exact thing. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I have to think it through, but I do believe there should be more restrictions uh, if, if, uh, when you get to uh, selling medallions to make sure that we don't have the secondary market that exploits drivers. Uh, I do believe the city has to take a greater step step into this market. It, well, and maybe now, too- by the way, 40% of Chicago's medallions are not even operational. Like the, 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 all the medallions that are out there, like now it's like the, it's the asset isn't even worth that much yeah. because, because you don't, I mean, they, they don't even have like, they don't even have enough business to keep more than 60% of the fleet operational. And that's where Lyft and Uber uh, sort of enter in and make it a double whammy. All right, before I let you get out the door and bring Adolfo Mondragon on, I have to ask you, I, to- I told you I was going to ask you about this. I think you, you already mentioned this, that uh, when, we, when in terms of the teachers and their battle with Lori Lightfoot, uh, I think last week you said you were sympathetic to the teachers primarily. I will not be surprised uh, that you said that. But you follow the news on a regular basis. What's your sense of the role the media is playing uh, in this dispute between uh, Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union? I mean, uh, you know, I'm not casting any shade on the regular kind of like day to day just news reporting about this, about like what the latest, you know, salvos are and who's saying what, that we just need that to be informed. But I do kind of have a problem with the way that the editorial boards of the papers are kind of taking these sanctimonious positions against the teachers, supposedly in the sort of public interest, from a public interest perspective and, uh, you know, uh, thinking about taxpayers' pocketbooks perspective and whatever. But, like, all of these people... Like most most of the people who write for the papers editorial boards do not live in the city of Chicago and send their kids to Chicago public schools. And if they do, they send them to well-resourced schools that have well-funded PTAs, that have their own fundraisers, that have all the things they need at their schools. So I just feel like 
I don't know. I don't have a lot of tolerance for people who don't actually have their own kids going to schools that don't have a nurse, that don't have social workers, that have that where their kids are surrounded by peers who are traumatized, who have to see their friends die like every week, every month, every year, you know, you go to like a, the, the, a funeral of a 16 year old in Chicago, that church is going to be full of other kids and that's not their first funeral. So I just feel like if you, if you're not, if your kid isn't in that situation, like how, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you say that? Like the teachers have no right to be advocating for, uh, kids to have social workers and nurses at their schools, you know? Yeah. That's just kind of, it, I just, I, I don't know. It's just like distasteful to me. I agree uh, with everything you just said there. And I have a first amendment protected right to say, I agree with you. And you have first amendment protected right to say what you just said, but that is well put. Uh, people in teaching in schools are dealing with kids who uh, have been traumatized by violence and the, for the public schools of Chicago, not just to automatically uh, infuse those schools with nurses and social workers to have it come down to a negotiated settlement with the teachers. I just think is disgraceful yeah. for the city like Chicago. Uh, once again, just like with the cabs, they kind of looked the other way while this was all going on, and now yeah. now they're discovering it. All right, Maya, thank you very much. We got Adolfo Mondragon sitting on deck. We're going to bring him on, talk a little Ed Burke. Oh my God, we need an Ed Burke update from <laughs> yeah. Adolfo. Talk about Danny Solis. Talk about Donald Trump, his taxes and judges, uh, and also get uh, his take on The Irishman, this movie I'm dying to see. So we'll be right back after this. And remember, Tuesday, November 5th, it's First Tuesday with Ben Jarofsky and now Maya Duke-Masova of the Chicago Reader. Who will they have on? Well, you're going to have to keep tuned to find out. Adolfo Mondragon is coming up next. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show. Everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind, but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel.
All right, everybody, hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for helping us out here and sponsoring the program. And, of course, today's show is brought to you by our dear friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. It is Tuesday, October 8th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacy Davis-Gates, returns. And we're talking all things local and national politics, as well as the Irishman, with election lawyer Adolfo Mondragon. And now your host, <laughs> not an Irishman, <laughs> Chicago Raider columnist Ben Jarofsky. Adolfo Mondragon is an election lawyer. He's an attorney. Uh, he ran for office on the southwest side. At one point, he worked for Ed Burke. Uh, <laughs> put that on your resume. He worked for Ed Burke, University of Chicago Law School graduate. I don't uh, put that on your resume. Yeah, you don't want to put that on your resume. And uh, But he's also... Uh, an among, avid movie fan, An right? avid movie fan. And as such, before we take a deep dive into politics, let's just take a moment to take this excursion, Adolfo. You're the only person I know who has seen The Irishman, and that's Marty Scorsese's, Martin Scorsese's epic film, three and a half hours long, right. uh, mob film. 100% rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and Holding. And this is from all the media outlets, not the, not the viewing public yet. This is from all of the media outlets out that there. have had an opportunity to, to see, see it, it and in weigh the press in on screen. It. Right, right. All right. So this is a movie that is uh, scheduled to debut uh, in on big screens November first. After about a month on the big screens, it's going to Netflix. Uh, Netflix sponsored it, but in order to be eligible for Academy Awards, right. they have to have some public screenings. Right. At least like two or three weeks in the, in the in the theaters. My theory is that this movie will probably be on the big screens for longer than a month because I think there will be a market uh, to see it. Now, I don't know how Netflix uh, right. will want the- What they might do is they might, what they're doing now with like Dolomite and Eddie Murphy, they're having it simultaneously. I cannot wait. wait. Oh, I heard, I heard it's magnificent. Like, yeah, that's yeah. a whole other story. I heard this is, the, this is the comeback, the third comeback or whatever of Eddie. Eddie? You know? All yeah. right. wait, 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 wait. It's funny, you just threw that at me. I wasn't ready to talk. I am waiting so much. Oh my God, I'm a big Eddie, dude, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy fucked up my life when I was 10, when I saw the Delirious. So, but anyway, that's, okay, a, that's a whole other day. story. Uh, but yeah, we will definitely talk uh, tomorrow. Sergio Mims will be in the studio, the uh, co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Huge fan of, uh, well, he, I, he, I think he's actually seen Dolomite or he's, he's already waiting. seen it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's a huge fan of black exploitation movies from so the So it's going to, it's going to come out like this All week. Right, or let's something. go back anyway. to the Irishman. So right. the Irishman is March Corsese. So there was a world film. premiere in New York at the New York Film Festival. And you were there. And I was there because I said, I, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. It's in September. My birthday was out that week, earlier that week. And I said, I have to go back to New York anyway. I usually go and visit friends once a year. And I hadn't gone in two years. So here's all these excuses to go. So what I did first was I planned my flight. And I said, well, all right, I'll buy a flight for that weekend. And if I don't get tickets somehow, 
oh, well, at least I'm here to visit my friends. Plan two was how do I get the tickets now? So I went on the New York Film Festival thing, and there's like, oh, my God, like, you know, if you want, like, the first day release before the public, you have to have the $20,000 VIP, you know, package. So I looked looked at all the different packages that you had to get in order to get the pre-sale. Because if if you if you try to get them on the day that they go open to the public, first of all, there's a few left. And second of all, what are the chances by then that you're going to get a ticket, right? So I paid for a $200 membership. That was the lowest rung for the New York Film Festival, get a full year membership. And uh, I was allowed to the last pre-sale day to go online that morning and purchase two tickets for the Irishman. And how much they charge you for the tickets? Uh, it was like thirty bucks or something like that each. Each. Okay. And um, so it cost you two hundred sixty dollars total. Yes. Okay. Which I thought was cheap. It was totally worth it. Worth it. Well, totally not cheap. But worth it. Worth it. Yes. Two hundred bucks to guarantee two seats. Now the way they did it was at Lincoln Center. As many people know, it has the opera, the the symphony, the ballet, playhouses, and it has movie theaters as well. It has two on on the center itself and one across called Walter Reed. So I chose. So they were gonna they were gonna uh, view it three o'clock, three fifteen, three thirty, and then three night uh, viewings after the first viewings, and then on Saturday uh, they were gonna have one viewing at noon, and then Scorsese was gonna talk, and that's it. No more viewings until I think they're going to have the UK premiere and then the premiere on the first. Mm-hmm. So I picked the 315 at the Walter Reed Theater and uh, turned out to be good because I actually caught and got to see Scorsese and all of them live, uh, like really close. But anyway, so the movie itself, right? So going into the movie without giving any spoilers, Please but giving a review. don't give any spoilers. No, 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 no spoilers, no spoilers. But, all right, address some of the things that were con- of concern to people going in. One, length of time, right? You said three and a half hours. It's Martin Scorsese's longest movie to date, although he's had long movies, too. Remember, um, Goodfellas is about two and a half, but from there, The Aviator is three. Silence uh, is about three and change. Um and so a uh, casino is close to three. I Wait, think. Silence. Uh, is it called Silence? The one about the Jesuits that go to Japan. Oh, I never saw that. Oh, yeah. that's a. I finally saw it uh, yeah, like a year ago. Oh my god! And this yeah. this movie is influenced a lot by that. Okay. The the the, the, the techniques he uses in that. It's like the 15th century or whatever. Yeah. yeah oh yeah, my god! Yeah. It's an amazing movie, right. and you would think it's not. And that that is like three hours long, and that goes by very quickly too, because you're so consumed with the movie. So. The first thing I have to say about that, yes, it's three and a half uh, minutes, three and a half hours long, but it's not the first movie ever to be this long. Godfather 2, many people sat through Godfather 2, which maybe had a five-minute intermission or whatever. Lawrence of Arabia goes around three and a half. People at the music box every year willfully put down their money and go see Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> 70 millimeter, okay? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dr. Zhivago, all these other movies are very long. Yeah. And so this is not the first long movie. Second, this the screenwriter uh, who adapted the book, mm-hmm. uh, I Heard You Paint Houses, which mm-hmm. it's, this movie is based on, yeah. did an excellent job of weaving this story. You are so consumed from the opening shot, uh, which is not like a dramatic shot either. It's not like in Goodfellas where they, where they open up the, the you know the 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 uh, the trunk of a car and they start stabbing Billy Bats with a knife. Yeah, it's yeah. not even like that. But automatically, when you see the opening shot, one. It's a reminiscent of a shot in Goodfellas, the uh, Copacabana scene, right where they enter the, the, the steady Copa, the yeah. steady cam, and so it sucks you right song, into. Please? 
Oh, was that what song is playing in the background? Oh, uh, of the of the Copacabana. Copa, yeah. Um, dun, 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 dun. Very till good. He ki- till he yeah, kissed kiss me. me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, on this one, the opening <laughs> song is in the still of the night. The, that cla- classic 50s, 50s oh my god da, ballad, da, yeah. da, you know like yeah. in the still uh, uh-huh. you know anyway so so right away from the beginning you're like physically you're moving in and you're hooked mm-hmm. this movie goes by the only time you actually feel the the length of the movie is at the end and only because at the end it takes a significant like slow down because the movie purposefully becomes slow and poignant to punctuate what Scorsese says this movie is about, mm-hmm. which is about remorse, looking back, age, time catching up on everybody, decisions that you've made, and at the at the end that we all go out the same way. Yeah. No matter well, what. I, I absolutely intend to see it. Your rave review just inspired me to see want to see it more of but I think I told you this. I've heard so many funny conversations uh, between uh, husbands and wives uh, <laughs> as where the husband says I want to see this movie and the wife hears the gangster movie for three and a half hours absolutely not <laughs> so husbands are all making these deals here's uh, the thing I have with that too they're calling it a gangster film because Scorsese beginning with uh, Mean Streets mm-hmm. which was about a guy in Little Italy uh, in, in the mafia right and then uh, Raging Bull you could say is part two right mm-hmm. because there's, you know, the element of the mob in the boxing, Goodfellas and Casino, right? So you have those four phenomenal movies, which are masterpieces, all of them. And then you call this one a gangster movie. It's a gangster movie in the sense that there are gangsters in it. But the thing that people forget is that, and particularly this movie more than the others, is that it's really about American history. You have the Jimmy Hoffa story there and the story of labor, the labor movement at its height before the Republican wave comes in and, you know, Reagan and, and, right. You have, um, so you have that story. You have, um, you have also the story uh, of, of the mob, but then you have the personal stories uh, involved with these people, the, 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 the poignancy of what, you know, Martin Scorsese is trying to get across that these individuals could have been Willie Loman, uh, you know, in Death of a Salesman, could have been anything else, but their profession was this, and they made these choices, and yes, it's a violent and different world, but it's, it's not really about gangsterism. You know, it's not like Scarface, which is like a movie that is about being, a, you know, a gangster. I want I'm on top of the world, mom, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It's it, it has um, different levels to it, including a historic American level with the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the assassination of JFK, the Bay of Pigs war. These the, are the, all all these are okay. all things that are streamed into this movie. All right, no more, no more anything vaguely remem- uh, mentioning uh, that could be resembling a spoiler. I will say this: I want to transition from your discussion of the movie to current Chicago politics, something that you follow very closely right. as both a candidate and a lawyer, etc. And that is this: um, part of the reason why. Uh, great gangster movies, for for lack of a better term, like The Godfather, Goodfellas, right. resonate, Godfather 2 in particular, for so many years and ca- have a life uh, 20, 30 years after they're gone, is that the way in which gangsters press uh, their power right. 
is so reminiscent of the way so many politicians. We see this exactly. in Chicago. Well, all Godfather the time. Two, which is gonna, which premiered again, the re, the re, you know, mastered at the New York Film Festival, and will be in theaters for three dates, like in a couple of weeks. We yeah. gotta go see that. Look at the, the the senator that opening scene of of, um, of Godfather Two, where he goes, Senator. Don't think that we're not part of the same hypocrisy, yes. you know. And he tells me, but don't ever think that it, 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 it you know, that my family is part of it. Or That's whatever. where you and I are. Michael Corleone, right, right. The He's telling this guy, to the yeah, senator. don't, don't act phony to me. You, you and I are part of the same hypocrisy, yeah. you know. And you, that's exactly it, right? Because what's going on locally or what has gone on locally for a long time is just the civil side of gangsterism, yeah. you know, essentially. Well, the notion that uh, I remember, I think it was Luis Gutierrez, very years and years ago, he became a congressman, he was an alderman at the time, telling me uh, that his favorite scene in Godfather 1, <laughs> all right, Godfather 1, was the scene in, I put this in the paper, so I'm not uh, right. speaking out of turn, but it was the scene in which, I always get this mixed up. It's been so long. I always forget it. There's a baptism going on. Yeah. So it, at the it's, end of the, so there's like a couple of things happening at once. So you have a christening and at the same time you have, right, yeah. you have a baptism christening, yeah. mm -hmm. but at the same time you have all these unholy acts and all these murders where he consolidates power at the end. Michael Corleone. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because all the, all the, all the heads so, of the family. So Michael Corleone is at a church watching uh, a baptism. Right. And meanwhile, while his henchmen are gunning down his rival. Right, exactly. And so from the standpoint of, of a astute politician, with the brilliance of that is he was, the enemy was distracted and the person who was behind wielding right. the power had a, a, a legitimate alibi. Right. To and so, and not only that one more, the, the, his, the, he's being godfather to his sister's husband, you know, his sister and his husband's kid, and he's gonna whack the 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 his brother-in-law yeah. in a few scenes later. Yes, Please. so that's why he's stepping in as the Godfather because he's saying, "I'm killing your dad, so I'm stepping in as yeah. your dad." You I know? know, very cynical. And by the way, we see this with Donald Trump, uh, and. Uh, this, we talked about this a lot <laughs> last week. We haven't talked about it with you, Adolfo, when Donald Trump made his phone call uh, to the president of Ukraine, right. and he starts off, he's, this is straight out of a gangster oh, movie. Oh, yeah, he it's starts a total off, gangster movie. He says, uh, we've done a lot of favors for you. And you haven't reciprocated. You know, he says, we've done a lot for you. I don't think that it's been reciprocated. By the way, I need a favor. Yeah. Like though, immediately after, right? He adds that, that you know, uh, yeah, we've, uh, but there's something I need from you, though. Yeah, you right. know what I mean? Letting him no, yeah, we've exactly. done this for you. Now we need something from you. Exactly. And it was and reminding them you haven't been a good boy, so you owe me a favor. Yeah, you, know? you owe me a favor. You have to be a uh, good boy. So I mean, so this is just very part of our culture. It's been accepted uh, behavior. Uh, it and right, and it manifests itself in these movies. That's correct. And when we see it, you're just like, well, haha, doesn't it remind me of something else? All right. Now speaking of which, the update on Ed Burke former uh, right, well, another Irishman, uh, right? Another Irish Irishman from the south uh, west side of Chicago, the right? Well, former I'm, powerful head of the finance committee, <laughs> uh, currently still the 14th ward alderman, right. correct? Uh, and the feds indicted him on it was official indictment, right? right. I was given for a while. It was just an investigation. They've indicted him on charges of extortion, essentially. Uh, 
actually, right. uh, and uh, trying to force uh, people who have business with the city of Chicago to hire him as their property tax lawyer. Somehow or other, it's legal in the city of Chicago <laughs> for the head of the finance committee to also have a property tax appeal business. Right. How is that going? It's an interesting thing, Adolfo. So what's the latest on Burke you were telling so, me So uh, from your Chicago Sun-Times, I saw that uh, there was a status hearing. Uh, which was very brief. Burke and all the other defendants did not show up. But what was interesting was that the uh, federal government, the prosecution, revealed that they had tendered over 4,000 documents, written documents, to the defendants, and including 100 media disks, which I'm th- or media files, which I'm I'm thinking those are all the phone, all the wiretaps wow. that mm. they're going to use and, uh, you know, uh, to build the case against them. So uh, the case has been continued to like mid-January, the 21st, I thought that's what the date that I remember seeing. Um, and at that point, then they'll have a better idea of maybe even setting, you know, dispositive motions and then maybe even a trial schedule for the fall. Prob- I'm guessing if it probably the fall of next year is when the trial will will take place if it goes that far and someone doesn't cop a plea or someone turns or something like that, you know? Well, I can't imagine, well, anything's possible. I should, I just should stop right there. But generally the pleas are caught by people who are testifying against somebody else. Well, but remember there's two other defendants. There's Pete Andrews yeah. and there's that uh, businessman from the North side, right. right? So one of those two, I mean, I don't think Pete Andrews would be the No, but I'm person. saying, Ed, I don't imagine Ed Burke copying a plea so oh, he testifies no. against somebody. I think no, no, he's, no, no, the no. he's the primary target. He's the big tuna. He's the big tuna, <laughs> you know? So. Speaking of mobster terms that find their way into <laughs> Chicago parlance. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that's intriguing that so many folks are talking about behind the scenes, if not openly, and you know this as well as I do, because we engage in so much of this conversation <laughs> ourselves, uh, are what are on those tapes. Danny Solis, uh, the former alderman of the 25th Ward, spent, like, what, four years, I want to say, taping conversations that he had as a mole for the FBI. I think it was four years. Was it that long? I think it was started in 2014 and went to about 2018. That's crazy. Uh, So there's a lot of phone conversations. Right, right, right. Uh, And so everybody's speculating as to who is saying what on these right. tapes. I'm sure there's me on those tapes somewhere. <laughs> I interviewed him. Right, but only some of, some of those are material. The rest of them are not. They're not, you know, they're not even relevant, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you ask Danny where he's going to go eat dinner is not going to, you know, make it to, make the, it to the thing. Uh, but no, it'd be interesting to see what, what, what things are going to start popping up from those um, transcripts of those uh, audio files. And then it'll all be about interpretation and spin, right? He'll say, because people speak in codes, you know, like, you know, the, the cash register and all these terms or whatever. But I mean, it's like, it's uh, it's again, like Trump. Trump thinks that he, by speaking in code on that phone call, that somehow that absolves him of any, any um, malfeasance or whatever. That he well, I'd like to, to point out that Somehow or other, in some sections of this country, it does absolve him. The Chicago Tribune, the editorial board of the Chicago Tribune, read the the uh, account of that conversation, and they said nothing. And was they wrong. Ca- they said that this was wrong. Uh, that this was wrong, but they see no evidence of a quid pro quo. <laughs> well, okay? you start adding the text and everything else, and then you start seeing yeah. evidence of a quid pro quo. So uh, apparently there are some But people- that's the thing, too. People are all hung up with a quid pro quo as if there has to be something for something literally, right? No, it could just be one side bulldogging the other side, right? I mean, saying, like, you're going to get us third on Biden, and that's that, you know, even if there wasn't 
saying like you know we're not we're gonna withhold the arms, which there was. But I mean, people get caught up with this thing as only quid pro quos are, you know, evidence of malfeasance. But me, that's not it. By the way, uh, I have to ask you about your interpretation. Since we're on the subject of Donald Trump, so he got in trouble uh, when the whistleblower account emerges, and it turns out that uh, sure looks like he's shaking down. Uh, the president of Ukraine uh, swapping uh, military aid to Ukraine that Congress has already approved, uh, the release of that military aid in exchange for dirt on Joe Biden right. so that it, that he could use in the political campaign and his presidential reelection run, looks like what he's doing. In uh, his attempt to show that there was nothing wrong with it, he has this press conference <laughs> where he starts bellowing. About I, China? About yeah. China. China, investigate Biden too. Everybody investigate them, you know? Yeah. It's just <laughs> stupidity. But, you know. Um, Do you think that's his, he actually thinks that undercuts the argument that it was a quid pro quo? That I think he, he, um, he, he thinks that it's equivalent to that idea that, you know, the Dick Cheney thing. If you repeat a lie enough, it becomes the truth. Like with the war, you know, uh, we found weapons of mass destruction. We found, we found, we found. They didn't find anything. He just kept repeating that 10 years after the fact. And people were like, well, they found weapons of mass destruction. I think he thinks that if he undercuts it by just making it, you know, oh, I asked China, I asked whatever, you know, yeah. then it's it's okay, you see, because I'm allowed to do it even in public or whatever. Yeah. It's no different. I think that that's, he's definitely thinking that way. And, I mean, unfortunately, there's a sector of society that will buy that. You know, well, I or, think there's a sector of society that will stick with him this, uh, through thick, no matter what. Oh yeah, and it's so interesting. You know, Republicans get all mad about the Syria thing right now, but ooh, you know, they care about the Kurds all of a sudden, which they should. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm just saying like, oh, whoop de doo, all of a sudden they care care about them, but they don't care about democracy and our civil society and all this other crap. You know, yeah. it, it takes this move with Syria to, for them to get all pissed off. And I think they'll back off on that one too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but there was a very good column, the Tribune. I, I always make fun of their editorial page, uh, but uh, there was a very good uh, column by Rex Hupke in the Tribune today about uh, how Republicans should be should take a look at the situation with the Kurds and see it as a warning. Uh, Trump will do the same thing to them. To oh, right, them. right, right, right. Um, you know, but uh, also... Uh, speaking of Danny Solis, yes. Um, uh, I was just going to say my next guest, Stacey Davis Gates, is here. So I want, before I let you go, to get into this Danny Solis twenty fifth Ward update. Give so, us the update. So when I was here covering for Maya in August, I mentioned that Mark Brown article that talked about the slush fund history of campaign financing and how um, then a story that he said where Danny Solis moved around some funds and used $220,000 to pay full, uh, what's that, Larner and Foley for presumably his criminal defense of whatever's going on with this Burke investigation thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I looked at the statute and said, you know, you you can't use campaign financing for your own personal gain. You can't even use it to buy yourself a pantsuit. How the hell are you going to use $220,000 to pay for your own personal criminal defense? It has nothing to do with your duties in office, and it certainly doesn't have to do with your campaigning for office. In fact... He's retired. He's done, right? I mean, for all purposes, he's done. He didn't run again or whatever. But the reason these things happen is because no one ever complains and there's no formal precedent. And I put it out there that Byron Sitchko should, 
you know, have someone or he the new alderman, the, the new alderman of the twenty fifth, newly board. elected alderman. And Byron has abided. The dude abides because someone from his team has agreed to file a complaint. I have agreed to do a pro bono. We will be filing that shortly. It was difficult. F- Getting the current address of Danny Solis, but I think we got it. Oh, you did it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think we got it. And even if it's it's the last known, but we're going to drag him in there before the board, have him explain what that money was for, what legal fees, and how are they for the committee, first of all, and how are they related to campaign financing, because they're not. Yeah. And hopefully this will set a precedent, and guy, other guys who can muscle people right now, if people complain against them, can retribute uh, people like uh, you know our um, you know uh, our head of uh, Springfield down there, uh, Mike Madigan, and all these other. If Sandoval's thinking of doing this, hopefully this will put a stop to that. Marty, state senator Marty right. Sandoval. So everybody who's under federal, you know, um, uh, inspection or purview right now, if they're thinking of using their camp- campaign finances to. Uh, pay for their legal defenses for their mal- alleged malfeasance, they better watch out. We're going to make a case of it that this should be stopped, and it should start with Danny Solis's case of, of shuffling money, and hopefully we'll set up good precedent, and it'll stop all of this from happening in the future. All right, that's Adolfo Mondragon, and uh, we'll bring you back to get the, the update on that. Our Ed Burke expert, among other things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about expert. Uh, and our uh, Irishman expert, uh, <laughs> at least the only guy right now, as I said. Yeah, in the city of Chicago, I've seen no one review it you know, no one went out to the New York Film Festival, I guess. Just little old me or yeah, something. So old you. let's do a little Siskel and Ebert, by the way, for all of our millennial and uh, Generation <laughs> Z listeners. Siskel and Ebert was a uh, movie review duo. Yes, back in the 90s. What would you give the re- two thumbs up? Oh, yeah, two thumbs up. And in fact, I know for a fact, both Siskel and Ebert would have given. First of all, Ebert was the biggest Scorsese fan. He wrote a book about Scorsese. And... Uh, 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 Siskel, Siskel loves Scorsese's films too. In fact, I remember when Goodfellas came out, they both of them were just like, wow. They said, Martin Scorsese directed the best film of the 70s, Taxi Driver, the best film of the 80s, Raging Bull, and now he's directed the best film of the 90s, Goodfellas. Well, uh, we had a, the panel on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh-huh. uh, which is a very popular <laughs> bonus feature in the Ben Jarowski show. Uh, we're definitely going to have a panel on, on the uh, Irishman. Irishman, and you will be invited. Right. And we're definitely going to have one on Dolomite when that comes oh, out. Oh, yeah. Uh, Eddie yeah, Murphy, yeah. I got a lot of black exploitation fans <laughs> out there. We're going to bring them in the studio. So uh, we love movies here on the show. And uh, you're lucky you saw the Irishman. Yeah, that was as awesome. As soon as it comes out, my, my, I don't even have to drag my wife. She wants to see it. She, Let's do so, it, man. Uh, all right, very good. That's Adolfo Mandragon. Stacey Davis Gates is on deck. We're going to bring her on, and we're not going to talk about movies with Stacey Davis Gates. <laughs> Although she looks like she might want to talk about the Irishman a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about about contract negotiations with the city of Chicago, the Board of Education, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot. We'll be right back after this. When you lose a loved one whose wishes were to be cremated, Chicagoland Cremation Options provides your family a dignified and affordable cremation service. Chicagoland Cremation Options helps you bypass the expensive overhead of a funeral home or cemetery by streamlining the cremation directly. It saves you sometimes thousands of dollars. Chicagoland Cremation Options Crematory, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. You can find them at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. 
Today's Ben Jaromsky Show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Get to know your city on one of Chicago Architecture Center's 65 walking tours. Hear the unforgettable secrets and stories behind Chicago architecture from our expert docents. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a tour right now. Oh, wow. Look at that building. Get a special discount for Illinois residents from July 15th to August 15th. All Illinois residents get 50% off select walking tours. Visit architecture.org slash IL dash resident. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Stacey Davis-Gates in the studio, Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union. You should be the political liaison when she first started coming on my show. Now she's the Vice President. We're going to talk about the negotiations uh, with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. We're going to talk about whether there's going to be a strike in the city of Chicago. Uh, We're going to talk about whether the Chicago Bears are as bad as I think they are. No, I'm probably not going to talk about that. But Stacey was talking to Adolfo about the wretched Chicago Bears, something we all I think Lori Lightfoot would even agree with us. The Chicago Bears were absolutely wretched on Sunday. Give an update for us. You were so optimistic about this football team before week one. I said they were going to go undefeated and win the Super Bowl. <laughs> all right. They're terrible. Absolutely terrible team. All right. We do have an update here. When it comes to good news, well, the state of Illinois will take it any way it can get it. That's correct. Now, if you recall, Illinois in the last couple of years has been the laughing stock of the nation. We've been broke Uncle Illinois here, broke as hell, in debt. We had no budget for three years. Thanks, Bruce Rauner. Yay for our teachers! (laughs) Yay for our teachers! But shout out to the University of Illinois Springfield Survey Research Uh Office. They recently conducted a poll. And hey... It's mostly good news. We have a few polls to read and share with all of you. Our first poll shows that Illinois voters are more optimistic about the direction of the state compared to 2018. Oh, okay. That's good to hear. In 2018, voters were 14% optimistic. That has gone up in 2019 to 28%. So only, okay, well, it's doubled, but it's still 28%. Hey, glass half empty, glass half filled, right, D? It's good news involving the state of Illinois. We'll take what we can get. Right. In 2018, 15% of respondents described the economy of Illinois as excellent or good. Mm-hmm. In 2019, this has risen to 23%. Okay. 15% to 23 <laughs> Okay. Moving on up. Moving on up to the east side. Finally got a piece of the pie. Now, this next one isn't so positive. In 2018, a bit over half, 53% of respondents said they had considered moving out of Illinois in the previous 12 months. In 2019, this has actually risen to slightly more uh, than 61%. All right. Dave Roeder actually wrote a very good comment about this, uh, was it the other day in the Chicago Sun-Times? We're going to bring Roeder on to talk about it, about people moving out of uh, Illinois and then discovering that the taxes aren't that much less in Wisconsin or Indiana, et cetera, et cetera. Sticker shock, you might call it. The three most common reasons cited for moving by voters who have considered leaving the state are lower taxes at 27%, state government poli- uh, policies at 17%, and better weather. Well, I can't blame him there. No, better 15%. weather. 15%. Wait, better we- weather is 15%? 15%. Where's taxes? Uh, taxes is at, uh, let's see here, 27%. Okay. And finally. I'm yeah. not a perfect person. <laughs> we got Governor Pritzker <laughs> approval numbers, okay. baby. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, the big fella can relax a little bit because yeah. 59% of voters approve oh. of the way Governor Pritzker is handling his job. Unsurprisingly, there is a partisan slant to assessments of Governor Pritzker, Mm -hmm. while 79% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents approve of of what Governor Pritzker is doing. Just 32% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents do. 49% of non-leaning independents approve 
of Government Pritzker. There are a lot more details in this poll. If you care to learn more, go to uis.edu. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. D. You're welcome. Uh, 59%. Right now, I'm uh, on the drinking that Pritzker Kool-Aid. Hold on. Take another sip. Oh. Mm -mm -mm. It tastes so good. We'll see if Governor Pritzker can get that fair tax pass. Of course, that's down the road. You want to finance government, folks? You got to figure out a fair and equitable way to do it. Uh, I'd say it starts with the fair tax. All right, Stacey Davis-Gates, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's been good. a while. I can't remember the last time you were on the show. I think maybe with your brother. Yeah. Uh, maybe been brother. We I think you kicked me to the curb. Did I did like not that? kick yeah. you to the curb, yeah. guys. <laughs> I bromance, I think. Is yeah, no, I do like it. your brother a lot, but it didn't, it's got nothing to say about you, all right? We yeah. just enjoy talking Indiana politics Well, with isn't him. that cute? Yes. <laughs> uh, Indiana politics. Uh, who thought I'd be interested in? All right. So uh, first question, of course, usually when you come here, we have more uh, general uh, conversations about the state of politics, where the Democrats should go, uh, where uh, our local politicians should go, and where in terms of financing uh, government and sorts of programs, et cetera, and so forth. Obviously, right now, you're in the midst of very contentious contentious, uh, uh, contract negotiations with the city of Chicago, the Board of Education, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, et cetera. So first question to you, uh, did you, on your way here, did you guys come here to announce that you cut a deal, that a deal has been cut? Just want to know, has that happened in the last four hours? Okay, well, they answered that question. Uh, So what, in your opinion, where's the state and the status of these negotiations? Um, We're still at the table. There is some movement, and they need to move more. They being Chicago Public Schools in the city of Chicago. Look, yesterday they made a big deal in their press briefing that we, I think the first line was, we get that teachers want more than money. Okay, that's a point of agreement. Two, we agree with teachers um, in terms of what they need for their school communities. Second point of agreement. Three, we've put it in the budget for a lot of the things that they're asking for. Well, we can't find it, but sure. But we won't put it in writing. That part, that last part, is why we're asking for it in writing. Um, Miguel de Valle, bless his heart, got up yesterday and said that we won't make promises that we can't keep. But this city makes promises to wealthy developers all the time. $2.4 billion worth of promises to Sterling Bay. And we are literally out here begging for a school nurse to be in a school Monday through Friday a social worker, some smaller class sizes. And it is a shame that you have to get a 94% strike authorization vote. It is a shame that you have to organize to get something that's very basic in most places. Um, I'm offended. I think that's a fair way of saying it. Um, From yesterday, just listening to the gaslighting. And knowing how different it is to sit at a table. So, yes, we agree on a lot of things. We probably agree that the bears suck, just like you just said, right? (laughs) Bless them. Um, You know, Colin Kaepernick is a quarterback. And he's out there and available. Yeah, so, like, the bears could unsuck very easily by picking him up. But I digress. Um, 
agreeing in theory on things is one thing as we're learning. Mm -hmm. Agreeing to things and putting signatures next to them is another. And the work that we're doing to give Chicago students what they deserve, we are doing that to get an agreement in writing. Mm -hmm. And look, it's reasonable. And I hate to like come and make um, arguments about reasonableness, but it is absolutely reasonable. 40 kindergartners in a classroom was 43 at Wentworth last year, almost 40 this year at Arthur Ashe in Chatham. Wentworth is in Inglewood. We have a lot of discussions about these neighborhoods, how disinvested, how much crime, how much unemployment. We underscore the, the, the difficulties and the challenges in those places all the time. So we put forth an actual contract demand that would limit the number of students in the kindergarten classroom for the very places that we label as dysfunctional all the time, and you refuse to do it, the city of Chicago, the Chicago public schools, and cite very unreasonable unreasonable theories as to why. Look, Ben, in 2017, the only thing that happened besides bad things with Bruce Reiner was the evidence-based funding model. 2017, August of 2017, it was passed. And it was passed to lower class sizes. It was passed to fund English language learning services. It was passed to fund special education and wraparound services, amongst other things. The Chicago Public Schools is a tier one district, meaning the concentrated poverty that we're dealing with in the school district gets priority funding from the state to help bring it to equity, mm-hmm. right? That money comes to Chicago. And when it comes to Chicago, the school district funds the individual schools in a manner that continues to exacerbate the inequities that have been baked into this system over time. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means you can afford it if you allocate the money appropriately. Those are the contract demands. All right. I just want to make just one brief uh, correction. Uh, the $2.4 billion that uh, Stacy alluded to for Stacey, uh, for uh, Sterling Bay is actually not just a Sterling Bay. There are two TIF deals that you were alluding to. One is uh, the Lincoln Yards deal, $1.3 billion. Uh, that's the Sterling Bay. And then there's the $1.1 billion for uh, 78, which is in the South Loop. I think it's related, related Midwest. Just wanted to get that point out there. But it is $2.4 billion. So I get to blame another wealthy yes, developer? Yes, okay. okay yeah, thanks. Yeah, okay. I'll add them to all the right, contract. I just had a, uh, all right. Uh, so much that you, you said there that I want to respond to. But I just want to get your direct response to what Lori Lightfoot had to say. You got that clip, D? Let's play the clip from Lori Lightfoot at that press conference yesterday uh, where uh, Miguel Devay was standing next to her, who is the uh, president of the Chicago Board of Education. Go ahead, D. CTU has not moved off of any of their main opening positions that they gave back in January of this year. That's not how bargaining works, as you all know. Give us a comprehensive written offer. We've given offers on all those issues. We need a comprehensive written offer that deals with all these issues. And when we get that at the bargaining table, we will respond to it and we can meet in the middle and get something done. All right, Stacey, your response. Bargaining. 
Do you know what their opening position was? To take away every single thing we won in the last two contracts. Their opening position was to take away everything that we won from the contract in 12 and the contract in 16. That's CPS's opening position. Their second offer, I'll give you back 15% of what I took from you. Third offer, I'll give you 30% of what I took back to you, from you. Why am I negotiating over stuff I already have? Like, in what world is that even something that reasonable, reasonable people would agree to do? That's the first issue that I have with this characterization of negotiation. I've never been in a spot where you take what I have and then you try to give it back to me. Yo, that's mine. That, and, and I've said this. That's hustling. That is actually a hustle. That is not collective bargaining. That is not negotiating. That is a hustle. And in the places where I currently live, where I grew up, that will get you beat up, hence a strike. Our opening position, our counter proposals, all relate back to the promises that she made. She being Mayor Lightfoot. Mayor Lightfoot made when she ran for mayor. Mm -hmm. So if she changes her promises, then maybe, but I don't see her changing her promise. Well, I kind of do the people who want um, Roseland to have quick and accessible transportation to the middle of the city. They've seen that change. Um, those uh, advocating for police accountability has seen um, no cop Academy, not only get a green light, but a bigger padding to make it, I think, quote, bigger and better. Um, you see immigrant, the immigrant uh, rights advocates, they want a stronger welcoming cities ordinance. They're, they don't seem to be getting that. Um, those who are advocating for affordable housing and an end to homelessness in Chicago, um, the stream of revenue that she promised them isn't going um, towards those things um, that she said that they would go to to eradicate homelessness, to um, pay for affordable housing. So the promises that she made us, the promises that she made all of those folks. Oh, and I forgot about the, the crown jewel of the rollback of promises, the elected school board. Right. So here is a mayor who said a lot of things to capture a lot of attention during campaigning that is walking back on every one of those popular um, ideas of democracy, ideas of equity and justice, as she has, is doing with our contract. Look, transformation in Chicago, a place that is the epicenter of racial segregation, of disinvestment in spaces where black people have traditionally resided, um, a place where you tear down affordable housing, push people out, and then claim in some um, future time that you're going to bring them back. Like, this is Chicago. This has been Chicago volumes of history on how um, terrible you can treat black people, right? This Chicago. You can't change or transform Chicago from the fifth floor of Chicago. 
it helps to have a partner on the fifth floor of Chicago if you understand organizing and shifting power dynamics in this city. For the life of me, Ben, I cannot understand why a mayor with so much potential and promise to transform our space is choosing to fight with the very individuals that can be the best partners to bring forth a Chicago that looks like her campaign promises. All right. Now, uh, I agree with you on that uh, that point, but the reality is that uh, the Chicago Teachers Union opposed Lori Lightfoot in the last campaign, supported Tony Preckwinkle, mm-hmm. and strongly supported her. Uh, and Lori Lightfoot's people are putting out the message. I just read this in political. Yeah, the other they day. suck. And you know why they suck? Because that's like fifth grade. Wait, let me just finish the message they're putting out. They get the response. The message is, is that uh, this is a, a power display by the Chicago Teachers Union to show them to show the mayor uh, that uh, even though their candidate lost uh, in the last mayoral election, she, the mayor, has to take uh, the Chicago Teachers Union serious. Okay, now respond to that. 94% of people, 94, you were raised by a teacher. That's correct, I was. Right, so <laughs> you don't convince a teacher of anything. Yeah. A teacher believes in a thing. So you have 94% of educators saying, yeah, we're going to go on strike if we don't get this. That's number one. That ain't got nothing to do with the mayoral um, election that has everything to do with the school Chicago students deserve and her inability to put campaign promises in writing. And let me tell you a not so hidden secret. Our members voted for her there. Chicago voted for her. So that argument is silly on its face. There were actual members, educators, teachers who live in the city of Chicago who voted for a strike and who voted for the mayor. So I'm still trying to figure out how that argument makes any type of sense. A vendetta? What is this, the godfather? Yeah. Uh, well, no, I have, a, I have a hard time believing that a Chicago teacher uh, would expose him or herself to the kind of uh, uh, hardship that a strike would entail going out without a paycheck you could potentially not be able to pay your rent or a mortgage etc and so forth uh just to continue or perpetuate whatever vendetta stacy davis gates or jesse sharkey may have with Lori lightfoot uh i do i do have a hard time people like me but they don't like me enough (laughs) to miss a meal yeah i mean like let's just put this into like focus here I know that in politics, you get a lot of young kids who don't have children, mortgages or any life experiencing cooking up like ideas and lines and communications. And I'm like grown, grown. And I know that you can't get me to do something just because you want to do it. When you have a mortgage, you have children, you have mouths to feed, you have responsibilities. Look, we have members who are. Um, in their ninth month of pregnancy, we have members who are in their ninth month of pregnancy. There's nothing stopping the mayor of this city, Chicago public schools from cutting off our health insurance. There's nothing stopping that. So to boil this down to a vendetta means that you have children writing your talking points who have zero idea of what it means to believe in justice and equity so much so that you vote for a strike to sacrifice that which you need. And so this is where all of the politics in Chicago, all of the politics of mayoral control really frustrate me. 
because the discussions miss the point of the needs in the school community, the people who are organizing and working to get needs met in their school communities. And we boil it down to some Shakespearean protagonist, antagonistic dramedy. That's not what this is. No grown person with responsibilities says, I am going to forego my livelihood because I won a smaller class size because they mad that they didn't win a mayoral election because you endorse someone. That is, that's beneath our members. All right, now let's talk about some of these educational issues that have a direct impact uh, on the classroom. You've already raised a couple. Uh, and one, uh, class size limitations. The other, uh, wraparound services, we call wraparound services, making sure that there, uh, there's a contractual obligation on the part of the Board of Education, Chicago Public School, to make sure uh, that there are nurses in schools, social workers in schools, council work, counselors in schools, librarians in schools. We have libraries. We should have a librarian. Uh, I think most people in the city of Chicago would agree mm -hmm. uh, that these are issues uh, that should be addressed, that we should have counselors in schools. We should have social workers in schools. The reality, the crazy reality of the way our bargaining works in the city of Chicago is that somehow or other this has become an issue and a strike. I don't understand why the city of Chicago years ago didn't deal with this without having the threat of a strike. Having said that, I have to tell you this and you know it, the law prohibits you from going on strike for these issues. You're not even allowed to negotiate it. This is a law that was passed in 1995 that gave almost complete control of the Board of Education to the mayor. So Mayor Lightfoot is uh, very savvy in, uh, in one respect to put so much concentration on money and get the public to think, oh, these greedy teachers, man, she's offering good money, real bread, as she says it, uh, and they should settle and go back and, and stay on the job. Uh, you're talking about, well, we need, we're not, we want to make sure that uh, we have class size caps. Lori Lightfoot knows, as, and her lawyers know, and your lawyers know, that if you push that too hard, that's illegal. If you go on strike over that, they could throw Stacey Davis Gates into jail. They could file, go to court to ask a judge to throw you in jail right. or ask a judge to impose an injunction that prevents the teachers from striking. And if you still continue to strike, they could find the hell out of the teacher. These are real political game. We, this, we talked about the Godfather before with Adolfo. This is the kind of... And this is not in red state Wisconsin. What we're talking about is in a blue state, is in Illinois, is in Chicago. This discussion that we're having about what are issues outside of the negotiating table, what we're talking about is a boss who is a mayor in a Democratic city who claims to be a Democrat having the capacity to rule a strike illegal and put labor leaders in jail juxtaposed to putting fines on a labor union that could just take the labor union out. Why are we talking about that in blue state Illinois? Why are we talking about that in Democratic stronghold of Cook County, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois? That, that is the question. And why are we still talking about something that was put into law by Republicans back in 1995? Why haven't we undone it? Oh, I forgot because this past spring, when the bill, after the bill had passed the House for the second time, the mayor asked John Cullerton, to hold the bill. You're talking about the elected school board bill. No, it was two bills. She um, requested that the Senate president 
hold in assignments. The first one was the elected school board bill, and he held it. Mm -hmm. The second one was the full restoration of our bargaining rights because her strategy from the very beginning was to make this about greedy teachers. Remember, this narrative was put into place by Republicans, and now it is being propagated by Democrats. You got to call BS on this at some point that this law is marginalizing school teachers in Chicago and blue state Illinois and blue Cook County and blue Chicago. And I'm supposed to believe that the only boogeymen in politics are Republicans. Nah, man, we got some right here in the state of Illinois and Cook County and in the city of Chicago. The fact that they are able to restrict our voice in issues of collective bargaining have led to the precipitous decline of black teachers, right? It has led to the proliferation of charters. It has led to the, the, the mass school closings that we've experienced here in Chicago, school turnarounds. All of these actions were available to the mayors, mayors, plural, mayors of Chicago because of this law. It hogtied the union's mm -hmm. ability to push back at it because what you just said, the consequence is going to jail or uh, putting your union into bankruptcy if they take you to court. Now, remember, Rom did the same thing back in 2012. At the very end. At the very end. He still did it, um, amongst <laughs> other things. But, he did do it, right? yes. But he did it. Yeah. Look, I fully, But he did not get the ruling. I don't believe he, he got the Look, ruling. Look, we were done. Yeah. You know, um, members were just reading the contract at that point, but because he had lost, he wanted to lose worse. Whatever. The point that I'm making is that this is an actual consideration this is something that we're talking about, like very seriously in our union, is that we have a mayor who would rule strike illegal. Now we have a, a very strong cadre of members who are clear. They just do not want a race. They need more. And by needing more, they're saying, I, you can't expect a person who is in charge of young people to be okay with leaving the very things on the table that's going to make the school community better. Ben is not enough grown folks in classrooms and in school communities right now. The beginning of the school year, there were 700 classrooms that did not have a permanent teacher. So the Tuesday after Labor Day, on the first day of school, there were 700 classrooms in this city that did not have a permanent teacher. And almost half of those school, those classrooms were special education spaces. The same spaces that are under state monitor for special education. Like fat meat is greasy. And this is where we are right now. If you do not get this in writing from these people, we're in trouble. And the fact that she paraded back in the spring, paraded around talking about this progressive um, board of education um, with people from the community who can identify with the issues that um, parents experience on a very daily basis. Do you know not one of them is in a negotiating room? Ask a teacher's union anywhere in this state if members of the board of education are in on negotiations and they will tell you yes. Only in Chicago 
do you not see the very people who are voting on policy not in the room? Why? Mayoral control. Heck, even with Rom, David Vitale was in the room in 2012, the banker. And now you have bona fide, like Dwayne Trust, a bona fide community guy. He's a member of the Board of Education. Who is a member of the Board of Education. Dwayne, who is a friend of Chicago Teachers Union. Brother ain't in the room. Elizabeth Todd Breland, who's written masterfully about the struggles of public education here in Chicago. She's not in the room. Miguel DeValle, before yesterday, a progressive champion. He's not in the room. Like, look, we have to start, like, calling this for what it is worth. Nothing. Like, transformation doesn't happen because you point a finger and say a thing. Transformation doesn't happen because you win an election. Transformation happens because there is collaboration, because there is coalition, because there are ideas that people are willing to organize around to bring into reality. And you can't do that by yourself. All right, let me ask you this. Uh, Many of the issues that get talked about uh, in the media coverage of negotiations have to do with matters that may that while important to teachers may not be of the utmost importance to parents or students. All right. But the matters that would be important to parents and students would be these issues of how many nurses are you going to obligate in your contract or what class size limits right now are class size really is no cap on class size in the city of Chicago. Uh, it's like you could put as many kids in because you could pretty much put as many kids as you could fit in the classroom. And then you, you could talk about it for several months while those kids stay there. So you could put specific language in there. Has the, have the, have the negotiators for the board of education and mayor Lori Lightfoot giving you specific proposals on the issues of no wraparounds and capsize things that are really matter to parents and students have they given you specific issues i mean specific nothing on, nothing on class proposals. size nothing on class size the one thing that they did give us on um say school nurses um is that we won't privatize them anymore if we can find enough in the school communities already so for instance if you have a nurse at every school then we won't privatize them well they already know you can't find a nurse at every school because there's not a nurse at every school right now so of course you're going to continue to privatize them right and the privatization of nurses goes beyond the the discussion that we have in labor it actually goes to the care of the students who need the nurse Right. So if there is a private company who has a nurse that comes into a school, you may not get the same nurse each time. Right. So the continuity of care is interrupted. Um, Say, for instance, you find a nurse and she's great who's working for the private company and you think that she would be a good fit in your school community. You can't hire her Mm -hmm. because of the non-compete provisions in some of these contracts. So it's not something that works well. Number two, um, they don't even see class size in the way that we see class size. The Board of Education sees class size in terms of dollar signs. 
they don't see it in terms of good educational practice. What do you mean by that? Well, because if you lower class sizes, then you're hiring more adults to be in the building. So if you have a class of 45 students, you cut it in half or you, you, you know, you cut the classroom in half and you send half um, to, to one space, 22 to one space, 22 to an, uh, 23 to another space. Um, I wasn't a math teacher. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so you have two educators. At you got to hire point. another teacher. You got to hire another teacher. So all they're looking at is we got to hire another teacher not the benefit so they don't want to be obligated to hire it contractually obligated to hire another teacher if class size exceeds right. an acceptable level so don't right. put a cap in the uh in the contract at all just give a vague promise just give a vague promise that you on the front end know you're not going to keep that's the whole point like when a boy would tell you well not you but when boys used to tell me i promise but <laughs> yeah but but you know don't tell nobody yeah you know it's like well is it really a promise are these issues being discussed at the bargaining table and if so does the bargainer say to you Stacy or whoever says it, you know, Jesse, you're not allowed by uh, state law to bargain for that. So yes. they actually say that to you. Absolutely. They've said it like these are these aren't mandatory subjects of bargaining. In fact, they said that we should thank God that they even considered um, the discussion about nurses and not privatizing them because that's not a mandatory subject of bargaining. So they were doing us a favor. They said, thank God for that. Well, to look. My words, but okay. Be same thankful. impact. Okay, got gotcha. you. Yeah, my words, but same impact. Oh, there's a lot of smugness at that table. Have they ever uh, pointedly threatened you to say, you know, you keep pushing this? Yeah, it's you're a letter. in jail? Well, they don't go as far as to say that. But basically reminding us in a very um, strongly worded letter from their labor attorney that we were um, publicly advocating for things um, that may be considered out of our purview. I saw that quoted in the Tribune, yeah. Yep. So, look, they mean business. They want to maintain an inequitable, almost apartheid-like education system. And in order to do that, they have to put duct tape over the mouths of um, union members, teachers, is what they're doing. So they're going to, so see, here's the thing, too. I don't know if you've noticed this and how reporters are writing this, which... Uh, Lori's comms people are probably pushing out union leaders, union leaders, union leaders. I'm like, yo, I'm only a union leader to a Republican um, tabloid. In my house, I am mama, mommy. Um, to my family, I am Stacy. And to the kids that I used to educate, I am Mrs. Gates or Ms. Davis. I'm not a union leader. Like this whole concept of blowing Stacy and Jesse up to these life-size uh, bosses is just insanity. It's actually funny because I'm like, dude, I'm a teacher and I'm a mother of three kids that I sent to the Chicago public schools. And I am having a time as a parent this year in the Chicago public schools, by the way. And so like this whole image of union that Democrats are trying to paint in the Republican tabloids is really interesting to me in this moment. The same Democrats who will come back to you during election time and want your support after you call me everything but a child of God. Nah, son. Like, this is the time where your friends and your allies 
make decisions about how important your relationships and your principles are, mm-hmm. right? And this is the time we're in. Look, I ain't told nobody that they can't like Lori. You can, you can love her. What I am asking people to do is to also be in love with the hundreds of thousands of black students and brown students who populate the Chicago public schools. The students that we've been saying for the last 10 years need more than a promise. They need it in writing. They need to see it in their school communities. That's this work. We should not be under mere oral control. Sometimes I think if there was really an elected school board in Chicago, that we could remove the politics of of protagonists and antagonists from these negotiations. Sometimes I think that we would have a better chance at getting school policies that reflect the real needs of the community because they're not jumbled up in um, approval ratings or popularity contests, that they would actually be about the politics of making sure students have lower class sizes, Mm. period. All right. Do you think it would benefit uh, this has been an issue that's emerged over the last week or so. Would it benefit negotiations to have Lori Lightfoot herself in the room negotiating with you? It would. Can I let me say this negotiation? I would prefer to be um, in my car going back and forth to Springfield than being in a, in a negotiating room with the Chicago Public Schools real life. It is infuriating because, you know, they agree with everything but can't put it in writing. It's not the folks who are in the room. It is the principles that the people bring into the room and the political will of getting a deal done that reflects the principles that the that people bring into the room. That's the deal. You have a lawyer in the room who was Daly's labor lawyer, who was Rahm's labor lawyer, and whose philosophy is weak contract, weak enforcement provisions in the contract, strong mayor you talk about james francis yeah mm-hmm. right those like ask any like labor union that's dealt with this gentleman over a number of years and they'll tell you the same thing but what we also know is that he has been a part of creating laws that marginalize collective bargaining for teachers in the state of illinois the city of chicago the county of cook mm-hmm. right not Scott Walker in Wisconsin, but Franzik, who worked for Daly and Rom, and now Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, Blue Chicago. This contract has to be different from the previous contracts because what we've done up until this point is insufficient. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, and I've been saying this uh, on this show and in my column, I think it's absurd that it the issue of uh, adequately staffing the Chicago public schools uh, and putting a cap on the number of children that you allow in a public school classroom. I think it's absurd that this comes down to a negotiation on a teacher contract. This, in my humble opinion, should be something that the leaders of the city of Chicago want and they should willfully willingly uh, impose. And uh, I've been dealing with these issues for a long time, Stacey gave long before you were a kid in, uh, what was it? Where, uh, South Bend. Yeah, I had to go there. That's what you was about to say. (laughs) Larry Bird. I was thinking Larry Bird. Uh, And I remember uh, teachers telling me, 
about class size and teachers telling me about lack of services. So this has been going on a long time and there's always been a lack of willingness to, and my humble, this is me speaking and adequately uh, staff Chicago public schools. All right. Because the people who are most exposed generally have the least amount of clout. So the fact that we're doing this at, a, at the bargaining table is utterly absurd. Uh, and I really feel bad for my city that it has come to this, uh, particularly since it's illegal. It's illegal to negotiate for something that everybody wants. How that happened, I do not know. Oh, yes, you do. I know how it happened, but why we tolerate it, I did But you know, the answer to that is clear. If you ever want to know the strength of white supremacy in the city of Chicago, negotiate a teacher's contract. I have been faced with every reason why we cannot offer a smaller class size to arguably the very children who need it the most for every casualty report we get on Monday, for every statistic we get about who's populating our, our, our correctional facilities. Dude, white supremacy is real. There is not a, a moral reason that anyone can give me at any point in this discussion, this exercise that makes sense as to why you cannot give kids who are living with lead poison, who are dealing with asthma, who do not have adequate health care, a school nurse. There is no reason you can give me none that would be acceptable or moral. This goes beyond a strike vote. This goes to the morality of the people who say they care about black kids, brown kids, poor kids in this city. That is the bottom line. And for a labor union to put forth very bold, audacious vision for this school system and to say, well, yeah, they could put us in jail and continue along like that's not a real thing. You have to question the people who are in power who are saying that we don't care about the very people that we are with on a very daily basis. My children's teachers are with them more than I am Monday through Friday. How dare I question their compassion, their commitment, their dedication? How? How do you do that? That's Stacey Davis Gates from Chicago Teachers Union. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. Man, I haven't heard that song in a while. That's super cool music. Uh, Dr. D playing the piano over there, the pride and joy of Alton, <laughs> Illinois. I'm good. Uh, Stacey Davis Gates playing the organ. Oh, man, they sound good, don't they? Uh, we're out of time here. We have to head out. We have Joe Colley is coming in from the Chicago Sun-Times. will be with us in about 50 minutes, a bonus episode. Oh, Talk- he's coming in. 
Yeah, he's actually going to oh, sit. Oh, last time we did Skype. No, he's going to sit right there. Or either where Stacy's sitting now or right next to her. We'll be talking Bulls basketball. How about that? I'm going to shift <laughs> gears to talk about uh, the state of the Chicago public schools. Uh, talk Bulls basketball. And that'll drop this Saturday. It'll be a bonus on the Ben Jarowski Show. Stacy Davis-Gates. October uh, 18th, right? Uh, October 18th. Beginning of the season. Oh, is that right? The, well, the season, uh, the preseason literally began last night. My beloved Bulls were losers uh, to Milwaukee. But I'm always optimistic about the Chicago Bulls. I'd like to say I'm optimistic about um, the state of public education in the city of Chicago. So You should be. All right. As we head out the door, we've been talking about some of the things that are so frightening and uh, about our city uh, with the public schools. Talk about something I should be optimistic about then. The fact that you have over 25,000 educators who are willing to sacrifice their livelihood, their financial stability to win the school Chicago students deserve that sacrifice means a lot and gives me tremendous hope for this school district that in their ability to sacrifice a thing for a school nurse, for a school counselor, for a school social worker, that we actually have people in our school communities who love our children and who are willing to go to the mat for them. That's common good bargaining, but that is also a labor of love. And I'm hopeful. I am. I'm hopeful because those those people will make this work. All right. Very good. That is Stacy Davis Gates, vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. And uh, let's hope, Stacy, you're not thrown in jail. Uh, let's hope. If that- I am, I'll give you the first jailhouse <laughs> interview. I'll be uh, I'll be the first call she makes. Uh, ben, give me a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> all right. On his way. Uh, anyway, Stacy, uh, I got to say, Stacy Davis Gates, but a good friend of the show ever since I've been on the radio, always coming on. The I'm show. only vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union because of Ben. Uh, uh, how would that happen? Oh, well, <laughs> look, no, seriously, like in all honesty, though, just because I'm feeling pretty emotional today. Yeah. Like. Black women who know stuff never get microphones. You know how many black women in my family know stuff and who were regulated to the kitchen table conversations? To have this microphone, this opportunity, amazing. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Stacey Davis-Gates, Chicago Teachers Union. I want to thank Adolfo Mondragon, the pride and joy of Curie High School, the Southwest side. He was in there early, urging everybody to see the Irishman. Uh, And uh, Maya was in the studio earlier, First Tuesdays. She's now my partner in crime at First Tuesday. Uh, Maybe we get Stacey Davis-Gates to be our next guest at First Tuesday. That would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it, D? Tuesday, November 5th, the first First Tuesday with Maya. Maya and uh, and Stacy Davis Gates. We'll cut that oh, deal right here. Cut <laughs> deal. Cut. Uh, and of course, uh, Stacy Davis Gates loves this man over here. The man. The myth. Oh. The legend. And ben, I almost forgot. I'm so glad I remember this before the show ended. You got to give us a review, uh, Stacy. I don't know if you know this or not. Ben has a new favorite show. <laughs> ben, how's it been? Gilmore Girls. Tell us about. Oh my God, it. you like the Gilmore Girls? Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed. Oh my God, like I, uh, Stars Hollow. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, a fellow yes. Stars Hollow High School. I uh, this is I forgot this. Uh, I I never watched the Gilmore Girls, uh, Stacy, and then. Uh, oh, but you have to love like the dialogue and well, the banter. No, no. Well, see, okay, so then I saw. I watched the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I loved that. I watched the two seasons, and so I was doing the reading Netflix. the background, and uh, yeah, I yep. saw that the the director, the writer, was the same person who did something called the Gilmore Girls. So I said, "Oh, I just check." I love Mrs. May. I never heard of the Gilmore Girl. Mm-hmm. Really, you know. So I started. Guess what? I'm hooked on the Gilmore Girls. You better Everybody's be. making fun of me now. No, <laughs> love the first you more. Part. 
love, love you more. Love, I love the wisecracks, the mm -hmm. this, the that. That nobody seems to get too down. You know what I mean? They face problems, but they always come back with a joke, and it seems to, you know. I and love they it. have the diner yeah. where they drink coffee. <laughs> yeah, and the guy makes these huge uh, cheeseburgers right. and French fries. Luke. And these, yeah, Luke, and they nobody seems to gain weight. <laughs> all right, I eat a cheeseburger and French fries. I'm already worried. I better go running or something. But these, like, they give the lady Miss the 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 the, the what's I don't even know her name, but the star of the show. They give Lorelai. her Lorelai. Lorelai, thank you. God dang, you know the show well. Like a cheeseburger about this thick. Anyway, and she I, wears a size zero. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> I uh, yeah. So I'm really I really enjoy. Plus, I love Carol King, and that's the opening uh, mm -hmm. uh, song. Carol King. Anyway, yeah. He so loves Gilmore. I girls. love Gilmore Girls. Yay. But uh, by the way, I got to recommend uh, the Hustlers. I know you're really busy now. You don't have time to go see movies. Hustlers, J Lo. Uh, Do you like it? Two thumbs way up. Really? It. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So yep. uh, anyway, all right, uh, Dr. D. So that's my update. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm still watching Gilmore Girls obsessively on Netflix. Awesome. The show has been off the air for 20 years and I'm just now getting around to watching it. But what was I saying? Oh, yes. You did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.